0: to get to see him. Within 48 hours of the Twin Towers happening, every available resource was ready to go. So Trafalgar had sailed literally the next morning. She had... I don't know where it is, and its and I—I've been a, a, a conspiracy theory, but I believe we knew, as, as joint NATO allies, we knew something was going to happen. We didn't know what was going to happen, but we knew that something big was going to change, how we think, how we operate. So, yeah, so I, I went down to Devonport and they were like, ah, Trafalgar sailed don't need you. So they sent you all the way back to my career course. <laughs> so I drove back to, as I was driving back up, they were like, not turn around, you're flying out this evening and you're meeting Trafalgar at a certain place. And I was like, all right then. So she'd been at sea uh, for a day and a half. So I, I went all the way back to Plymouth. They were like, right coming to the office, went in the office, had all my kit ready. I was with my ex-partner at the time, told her, look, I'm going away, don't know when I'll be back. Obviously, because of what's happened. More intel was coming in. And, yeah, next thing I knew, four days after the event, so this is now September the 15th, I'm flying out to Diego Garcia oh,
1: wow. to
0: meet the And as the boat pulled in, everyone's like, what the bloody hell are you doing here? I was like, "Dana." Yeah, uh, come to, come to sail. And I uh, yeah, we put a full payload on of Tomahawk and they were like, right, we're going in. So I think it was about September the 23rd, we'd actually got into area. And we for for some reason we've always trained in show ops on British submarines. That's why American commanders now who are engineers and warfare come and do our what they call parachutes, which is our submarine command course. And we were literally a mile off land firing Tomahawk in. And it was all over the news. First American submarine fires Tomahawk in there. And then all they could see was us coming out the water. And we were like, American submarine hasn't fired at, It's been us. And it was it real. Was, I think it was like the Fifth Fleet or something was behind us. And it was surreal. You know what I mean? So you got a little Trafalgar-class submarine firing Tomahawk. And on the radar, you could see like a little blimp of the Tomahawks going in. And then it was like raindrops behind us. And that was the fifth fleet firing it almost for every one we fired. They were firing like 150. It
1: was <laughs> On today's episode, I speak with my friend from across the pond, Gordon Taff Howells, who is a Royal Navy Submariner and now a Royal Navy basic trainer. He grew up in Wales and joined the Navy 25 years ago. We talk about life as a Submariner in the Royal Navy, the response to 9-11, overcoming an injury that ultimately ended his time at sea and what he sees for his future. Sit back, relax, and join us on this episode of After the Battle Campfire. All right, you guys hear it all the time. The typical, if you like this episode, please rate us, subscribe to us, leave a comment on iTunes or Spotify, wherever. Well, it really does make a difference for this podcast. We're small, we're trying to get bigger, and all of this feeds the algorithm so that iTunes or Spotify or Pandora, wherever you find us at, will rate us higher and higher with the more likes and comments that you guys leave. And always, if you guys find value in these episodes, please leave us a comment on the episode or on the show uh, page. And the best way to help us is to share it off. So again, thank you, and we will talk to you soon. All right, we're back, and I'm here with my friend Gordon Howells, who I met in 2018 at the Navy Team Trials. It seems to be a Navy Team Trials uh, couple of weeks here on the podcast. Gordon was with uh, the UK Navy, the British Navy, um, The actually, I should say it correctly, the Royal Navy. And um, we met, well, he came out to do their tryouts. Just like when we talked to Peter Brown, how the Australian Defense Force came out to try out with us, so did the Royal Navy. Um, it was an interesting adventure meeting uh, Gordon. He introduced himself as Taff, which I do want to get into what exactly that meant, because I don't remember the whole story, but welcome.
0: Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, Yeah. So Taff is a nickname for a person from Wales, which is part of the UK. And during the Second World War, obviously, because of everything that went on, they used to give locations and people from different areas nicknames. And because there's a massive river that runs through Wales called Taff, the English being Brilliant as they are, decided to call <laughs> everyone past our river Taff, and it's just stuck ever since.
1: So, did you end up growing up in uh Wales your entire life? Prior yes. to maybe
0: Yeah, so I, I joined up two months before my 18th birthday. So I, I grew up in the valleys, a place called Ronda, where all the mines were, all the coal pits where they produced coal. And then obviously that shut down and there was nothing much to do. And I've always been interested in the forces. My grandfathers were in the forces, both in the Second World War, both in the Korean War. And, uh, yeah, it's just I was the first out of my generation. I'm the only one to join up 25 years ago.
1: Oh, wow. OK, I didn't realize that. Um... So is service not as valued or not as a priority as it is here?
0: No, um, we, used to have, uh, we used to have our... Uh, used to have to do national service and then they got rid of it in the 60s 70s um but no if if you want to join you, you if you want to join up and make a career then you can but there's no every it's not as forefront I, I hate to say as the americans do but um yeah people if you want to join up you join up for the for the for the love of it if you know what i mean and for the career not for because we have
1: to right so i mean is there a big is there a big patriotic streak in the uk for, for um, people serving
0: it is and it isn't yeah i'd like to say yes we're all but but yeah it's quite hard to be honest with you. i'm not gonna lie people will people might say different but what i've seen is there is i'd say there's a massive divide between people who want who, who cherish the services and people who don't if you know what i mean yeah. So i think that's all, that's all over the world but yeah it's, uh some of the places we go if we are in uniform people stand up and shake our hands and Thank us, but yeah, it's it's not as forefront as it is in the U.S. than it is over
1: here. Okay. So um, let's start with the bi- with the origin story. So you grew up in Wales. Um, yeah. What, what was your growing up like?
0: Hard. Hard. So I grew up with a father who was a miner, so money was scarce, and we had to make our own, our own fun, our own thing. You know, growing up where there was hardly any money um to be honest you there was a uh, there was and there's still in some cases in Wales a lot of poverty. So we were I wouldn't say we were we were rich and we weren't middle class but we were the old, lower end so we had to make ends meet. So I, from a young age I started living off the land with my grandfather um doing stuff in and, in and out of stuff trying to make money just so I could have a life more and I think I'm playing rugby was
1: my release playing sport. So, yeah, so did when you? Said uh, your father was a miner. What type of mining did he do? Coal mining, oh, so, so hard mining,
0: yeah, so massive, massive, massive. I went down the pits a couple of times with him, um, and it's a job I didn't want to do, if you know what I mean, right? So, my father worked as a what they call like a first aid or rescue person in the mines, and the amount of injuries down there and where he was located was near big cyanide pits, and I thought, mm, this ain't. Health and oh. safety was about a field day, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, so especially me, now.
0: And my father joined there when he was 14 and a half. So Oh wow. Yeah, so there was there was a certain age limit that you could work to, but being in the valleys, it was one of those that people liked to get work. And my father started at 14 and a half, which some people might say is bad, but yeah, it was it was the norm in, in Britain at the time, especially in the valleys.
1: So with you, um, how long did you go to, did you finish high school then, or the equivalent of?
0: Yeah, so I went to secondary school. um, Obviously I've done done quite well in school, but I was one of those that it wasn't my forte. I just wanted to leave school and get my feet on the ground. So I'd always been interested in the services. I I was in army cadets, which is like a cadetship over here. I went to join the army, joined the army, and I thought, you know, this isn't me. So I left there as a young entry, uh, joined up at 16, and left. Left within a year, and then decided to join the navy, and then went from there. But yeah, I, I finished. I finished equivalent to your high school, and it was at that time you could leave at 16. Where it's different for yourselves, where now you can't leave school until you're 18 or you've got some sort of apprenticeship so yeah
1: let me ask you this so i know a little bit about the british army um not enough but i know it's broken up differently than here where it's like the u.s army you go wherever they send you i know you guys have like the british army the territorial yeah so
0: we've got got reservists that basically we call weekend warriors but they do a a fantastic job but like it's the old reservists so they can our forefront. For example, I've just had two friends who who do a lot of security work for my own business um, outside, and they've just done UN peacekeeping in Cyprus for the last seven months. So basically, we call them civilians in uniforms, A okay. bit like your bit like your um, home guard type type stuff, if you know what I mean. Oh, okay. so they, they will go where they need it, but yeah, it's um, yeah. I'm going to say they not, they're not? not, um, as in, done an oath of allegiance to do full-time. They're not full-time.
1: Okay. So when you joined the Army, were you going in as a full-time soldier? Yeah. So
0: when, so when I joined the Army, I was going to join the Royal Engineers. Um, it was full-time. And um, looking back on it, it, it's one of those, you know, I, I done my 48-hour selection, got in, um, went to do my basic training in a place called Purbright. Um, but it, it just wasn't for me. So i come out early. Uh, my grandfather was AC Rescue, so he was in the Navy. My other grandfather was in the Army. And I just thought, you know what? Let's try something different. So I'd come out, and I was playing rugby one weekend with a friend of mine. And he had joined the Navy on submarines. And when he come out, he had all this money. You know what I mean? And he was driving a nice car. And I was like, Lee, where did you get that? He's like, this is what I get being a submariner. And I thought I'd like a piece of that. So I literally, after playing rugby on a Saturday morning, we went to Cardiff. I ju- went in the careers office, thought oh, I'll have a go of this. Just done the Navy entrance test. Didn't think nothing of it. Monday morning, give me a phone call. Can you come back uh, tomorrow? Went back on the Tuesday, and two weeks later, I was in HMS rally and I'm look back since. <laughs> it <was laughs> so it was that at the time in
1: '96, yeah. So talk to me about the uh, how. What was the, what was the basic entry like for the navy then? Was there a boot camp per se? Like
0: yeah had- yeah. So I'm training now. I'm a I'm a basically I'm a phase one instructor. So I'm a divisional instructor. So at the moment I've got 20 recruits I'm taking through um, in H M S Collingwood. Uh, their training is now a 10 week program, which is to get them basic recruit training into the life of the Royal Navy. And then what they'll do is after this ten weeks, they'll go to their phase two training, join a vessel or a ship or a platform, and then progress with their career. However quick it takes them, or however long. Uh, with my when I joined up, it was eight weeks. So you joined up, joined up on a Sunday. As soon as you got there, you chucked a load of kit, and you were literally transformed from that little skin-faced civilian into the midst of it. and It was like. You're in the wrong navy. You've signed the dotted line that evening. And then that was it.
1: Did they at it least give you some room? No. <laughs>
0: no. It was literally, it was full on. They give you all your kit. And it was the first week was just an introduction of folding kit, ironing your kit, um, putting your name tag on it. Because uh, we used to stamp our name with paint. Now they give you nice little embroidered names and all that. Um, and to be honest with you, it was... It was in your face. Like now we have to take a step back. Now you know what I mean how the modern era has gone. But in that day it was in your face. You've got eight weeks to get from that person you was to someone who's going to be passing out the gates of HMS rally, which is the main training depot. Um, and yeah, it was it was full on.
1: So I talked to uh, Peter Brown. I don't know if you remember him from. Yeah, I remember. The, the australian defense force and he was telling me that um the games as we like to call them here started the minute they got on the bus i think he said he had an eight hour uh drive from sydney to where their army boot camp was do they play do you, are you guys um when you went through vocal and loud and
0: yeah so yelling when we- when you're in training, it was it was any slip-ups, you were on warning. One warning, they give you a, a, like a, a tier system. Two warnings, you're out. And it was that it was that strict. You know what I mean? We've taken a step back from that, and we were archaic in that respect. And we've gone into more coaching and mentoring now than full in your face type stuff. But I just think it's a difference in generation with all the new technology and everything like the, the old PlayStation generation. Because when I joined up, I wouldn't say to a goose." If my if my petty officer, my my DI, told me what to do, and I'd be like, "When do you want it done? How quick do you want it done?" You know. But now it, I just think it's the nature of the beast across the world that the generations are now, um, and yeah, you've got some who want to be in, and you've got some who don't want to be in. But yeah, it, it's a process of elimination. You know what I mean? And, and I hate to say it, we are still a big forefront in the world, the Royal Navy. We are probably still one of the best fighting forces in the world, um, just globally and what we do. You know what I mean? You look at any major conflict in the last 100 years, and the Royal Navy's always been there, even peacekeeping, even doing compassionate or humanitarian-type things. Um, yeah, so when I joined, I, I had already had my dream of, joining submarines and you know what I mean the Royal Navy submarine service is 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 a forefront throughout the globe. And even now there's there's people I've served with who are on patrol keeping our water safe. You know what I mean? So it it is it is a difference from when I joined up to now. Obviously better equipment maintaining the technology where and then in another way it's totally different like on a, a 180 because the camaraderie and the people who wanted to be there were there when I joined up, where now people think it's a game. And slowly, when you tell them and you coach a mentor, they realise that they're not in the school no more. They're not in a game. This yeah. is real. You know what I mean? You could be going to war at any time. And like myself and other people, and even yourself, lost comrades, lost very good brothers, sisters in, in conflict. And when you hit home reality to them, about that, and that's the training they're going to be doing for. Some of them just don't want to be there, and yeah, they they sign the dotted line to get out.
1: So let me ask you that then. Um, I got a couple questions I want to get into with you. The big one is: so, you, like you said, you joined the army and you decide that it wasn't right for you here in the U.S. Um, you join the army and you decide it's not right for you. Short of getting kicked out and probably never being allowed into another service again. It sounds like you guys have some flexibility.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, for for example, when my last job before going into this phase one in January, um, I took some like forty odd Royal Marine commandos who were commandos who'd been to Afghanistan. They had done three or four tours of Afghanistan and decided that job change, so they actually transferred from the Royal Marines into the submarine service and into into our uh, like the Royal. Um, I'm going to see the fleet there on, which is our Air Force equivalent in the Navy, and also on general service, which is ships. So we're quite flexible, and I've had lads transfer from the Army. I've had lads transfer from the Navy to the Army. So we're, we're quite lucky in our respect that we can transfer between services. Yeah. But as like you said, we've got 30,000 in our Navy. You've probably got 300,000. So
1: Probably somewhere <laughs> around there,
0: yeah. Yeah, so you're not sure of manpower where we are at the moment. We are, and that's why we've had to open up more recruitment centers around the UK, because we are short, especially with our new new aircraft carriers that have, have, we've just built. So, And they're, you know what I mean, they're, they're I can't remember, it's some sort of level, but they're, they're one of the most advanced aircraft carriers in the world, if you know what I mean.
1: So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really surprised to hear that you got whatever that number was, 30 or 40 uh, Royal 30. Marine Commandos. <clears throat> who now yeah. want to go sit in a submarine. Yeah. Yeah, um, That that's like taking Delta guys and saying, okay, we're going to put you on a patrol boat for the rest of your time.
0: Uh, but, uh, uh, but the thing is, you know us Brits, if we're not doing something, we get bored very easily. True. Very, True. very easily. So <laughs> since the conflict of, you know I mean, Afghanistan's now dropped and different things, Royal Marines are training doing more maritime stuff, but some of the lads joined up to go to conflict. And I I know it sounds a bit weird, but we have they're just a just a strange breed, but an absolute awesome frontline infantry soldier, if you know what I mean. I mean they do 32 weeks of the hardest training in the world and then they're trained to, you know, go into conflict and sold out, and then they go, Well, you've been trained for this, but we're just gonna keep you to do maritime stuff and then some of them look at the career path and think, do I want to do that? And yeah, some of them have come over to the, the, the submarine world because of the, the qualifications and the camaraderie is exactly the same as in the wrong wings.
1: Yeah. I've, I've heard that with some of uh, our special forces guys too, that, you know, join 2015, 16, not much is really going on. And some of these guys are missing out on deployments and end up getting out after all that training. So yeah, that totally makes sense. Speaking of which, uh, and which would be a great thing if they could transfer to other services. I mean, you have a good point. Like, instead of losing that talent, let them go somewhere else. But speaking of training, so when you are training these guys, how much, because I mean, let's be honest, the Royal Navy, like you said, is a historical force. How much is tradition and history taught?
0: Massive. So from day one, uh, just even the jargons, the mannerisms. So when they join, their are two straight away. As soon as I get them off the bus, I say to them, you are joining the best fighting force in the world. Start acting. As soon as they get off the bus, they fall in. They, we've got to make sure they got their cuts. If the hair's not cut, you're getting a your cut. If it's not cut by the time I tell you, you're going on warning. If you get three warnings, you're gone. This is the, this is how strict the Royal Navy is. This is why we are disciplined and we need to be disciplined because what we do and what we need to do could be the matter of life or death. So straight away, getting marching, getting a kit in. So the first week I show I've, I'm with my first class. Um, so I've shown how to do the berries, polished boots, clothes. They're now in week four and they went on leave today um, for two weeks before we come back because of the Easter holidays. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, out of a class of 24 i've already go i've got rid of seven because they're just not cutting the muscle oh yeah if you're not good enough bye
1: bye bye cherry pie you know how quickly how quickly do you start uh sending people home then instantly so within two days of actually
0: actually starting my new course i had one person who wanted to go home and i was like
1: Thursday. by the thursday they had gone oh wow okay so i mean you guys aren't fooling around
0: no, no, no. So basically, it's if you want to be out, we'll train you. If you don't want to be out, we're not going to flog a dead horse. Just, just. And some of them, people join up and think, oh, I want to join the military. And then when, when it hits home that they're going to be isolated, you've got someone breathing down your neck, you've got someone telling you what to do, you're not getting in bed till half 10, 11 in the evening, you're up at half past five, and you, you, you're working all day. Then, yeah, it hits home that they can't, they're not at home with mummy and daddy now playing on a PlayStation or Xbox. You know what I mean? They have to look after themselves as a big onus. Uh, if not, you've got myself and I've got a lead in hand, which is equivalent to a junior petty officer level where, you know what I mean? Breathing on the neck, you slip up. I'm all over you like a tramp on chips. Pardon the expression. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm all over you. So if you don't cut the mustard,
1: all right. Damn. So let's go back into your story a little bit. So you said uh, you knew, when you joined, you knew you wanted to go to subs. Um, in the U.S. Navy, becoming what we call a nuke—someone uh, who works with nuclear power plants, nuclear weapons uh, on on subs—is a real small community of people, based off the score they'd get on the test. Did you have any idea what you were going to get into?
0: No. To be with you, no. Um, So when I joined up, I done my eight weeks training, went from there. And um, because I'm a marine engineer, so. My job is I operate and maintain the reactor on board and all the power systems. So in the U.S. Navy, um, because a couple of my friends from the Hartford and from Seawolf, I I met some cracking guys when we were up in Faslin working up there. Um, Yeah, so when we join up, we join up as a bottom rating, an AVA rating. So a marine engineer at the time I was. And that is the lowest watchkeeping or lowest position you can be for my branch, which was marine engineering. So when you join um, submarines, I went into my part two. I'd done all my basic engineering in HMS Sultan. And then I, I was streamed Trafalgar-class submarines. So I went to Plymouth. And there you do a three-month drive phase where you learn about every system, every routine, every valve on board a submarine. So after you've done all your, your oral boards and your drive phase walk rounds, you're given a draft to a submarine. So my, I was lucky my first draft was Trafalgar. HMS Trafalgar, which was the, I mean, the the forefront boats, so the first of the Trafalgar class submarines. And the good thing about it is, I'd done all my drive phase on that submarine, so when I went to sea on her, and the and the story was, so I, I just done my, it was like a, it was on a Monday, so I just done my final walk round. You know what I mean? Done final report, and they were like, right, Wednesday. You got your last presentation. So on the Wednesday done my presentation, I was like, right, you said I can go home long weekend till I joined Rafalga next week. They were like, right, just go down the submarine, tell them that you're now ready to join her, and you'll see them next Monday. So I was like, bright and breezy, young 18-year-old window, <laughs> very cocky because I've just passed it." You know, I mean, I'm going to see on this big, big black thing of death, you know what I mean? Really, really excited to go down with a bit of a buzz. As I went down here, it was an old and bold charge chief, who you call a warrant officer, your your, your CWOs. And he sat there. And And the thing was, Jim, he'd be already been in the mob 32 years, and we call the Navy the mob. Um, he'd already been in the Navy 32 years, so he'd been in the Navy 14 years before I did, was even born. <laughs> so I'm sat there, and I've gone, hello, hello, sir. Uh, hello, charge, it's, it's tough. I've just passed my board. I'm going home, with you Monday. He went, no, you're not. I was like, what? He goes, no, you're not. We're sailing tonight. You need to go and pack your kit. I was like, no, 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 I'm going (laughs) weekend." He's like, no, man, you're joining this boat. We're sailing tonight. I was like, oh, for like a week. He's like, no, 11 and a half months minimum. I was like, you what? He's (laughs) like, yeah, we're going away. We're going away. We're going away. And this was uh, towards the beginning of 97, it was. And we sailed on a, a massive deployment called Ocean Wave, where we went round the world. So I was like, "All right," I didn't have a clue what I was taking. So he was like, "Right, I'll give you a list. Go and just." And I brought these two bags down the boat, and I thought, "Oh, I've got my own bed." So as I come down the boat, I was like, "Hello, sir. Come my bag. You went. Right, just get your overalls out. Get your eights on your normal daily working rate. Get your overalls for the engine room. Towel, all your wash gear, all your civilian clothes. checking in that bag. checking down the switchboard room and storage." I was like all right I said can I just come in later he went you're on board and I was like well I haven't packed anything away he says tough shit basically pardon the French he goes you're on board that's you next time you'll get off this boat is in when we get back to the UK and I was like "Ah," oh. so said can I bring my mum one day <laughs> so he's like yeah use the phone there so I wrote my mother I was like I won't be home this weekend she went when will we be home I went November December time she went "Ah, oh, all right um so i'll see you when i see you and i was like yeah so that was it so i thought i was gonna have my own bed on this nice big submarine and then i ended up in the bomb shop sleeping next to a torpedo for six weeks until i got qualified in my watch <laughs> position yeah, so
1: so. <laughs> so i I didn't even bother to ask and i should have how, how did your family take the decision that you decided to join the navy
0: um, so my mother's my mother's well, my mother's father was at AC rescue in the RAF. So he done a lot, he was over the Berlin Airdrops, done a lot with the RAF, and then he was also part of the AC rescue. So he was he was rescuing um servicemen on uh torpedo boats and everything during the Battle of Britain and stuff like that. So on when he left, he settled near it well, where my mother and father are from a well, my mother's from a seaside resort called Port Cole. And at the when I was younger, my grandfather, uncle, has had about seven fishing boats. And I grew up basically fishing every weekend, every summer, spending it with my grandfather. And he was a typical hard fisherman. Nothing, no remorse, no nothing. But his family was his life. And basically, because I I wanted to follow my grandfather's footsteps, and there's about forty. Cause I, there's like he had about forty grandchildren. My grandfather. We're, we're not a small family, if you know what I mean. Um, but I was just like his. I was just like his choice. I was attached at the hip to him, and so I just seen it go to water. And my grandfather. And I always remember being a kid. My grandfather. I wanted to join up, and obviously I wanted to join the army because I was from the valleys, and all my friends were in the army. When I when I was talking to him, he said the only thing I ever regretted was not being in the navy per se, even though he was AC rescue attached with the navy. And um, he says I wish I'd always done submarines. And it was just a conversation we had, and obviously from where Churchill said about the submarine service in the Second World War, and the, and the, and when you know what I mean, you had um, Dönitz and Hitler released the thing saying that all submariners were pirates. And being a young kid, I thought, I want to be a pirate. <laughs> uh, and this is what I tell everyone today. So the history, going back to history, I've got people who want to join submarines, and I tell them about the history of the Royal Navy. The battle on as we go you know certain slangs but i said you join submarines you will become a pilot you will be a pilot and that's what we're still classed as today which is and that's why we fly the skill and crossbones when we've been in a operational area
1: nice
0: so we're the pilots are
1: <laughs> so um how did your dad take it um to be honest you
0: i didn't really have a good relationship growing up with my dad you know, I, I thought I was coaching, but it was my, but he's proud. You know what I mean. We, he's typical Welsh people. With you know, what I mean, even to this day, twenty five years in, my, my mother and father are still. You know what I mean? Because I, 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 even though I'm still in at the moment, um, I'm looking at going officer. So I'm going to try and sit my admiral be interview board in the next couple of months, and probably stay in and be a lifer till I'm sixty five. Hopefully, oh,
1: you know they, I mean? they let you
0: stay in that one. Yeah, yeah. So yeah yeah they do yeah see so that age is the limit but
1: yeah that's the one downside with the American Navy is we have this thing called higher tenure. If yeah. you don't advance past a certain pay grade, um, like if you get stuck at petty officer third class for six or seven years, they're gonna say, well we don't need your service anymore. Um, 20 years for a first class they get their retirement Chief is 24 ah. years. I think it's 26 or 28 for senior chief and then master chiefs are out at uh 30 and that's a top of the enlisted rank, but they're only, if they came in at 18, they're only 58. So I know that I know there's a lot that would serve beyond that if they could.
0: Yeah. But the thing is your pension scheme. When I looked at that, but, oh yeah, but, but even, even the pay your, your submariners are on compared to us at sea is unbelievable. You know what I mean? They don't, I was talking to one of the guys, so as I said, when we join up, we go through different positions on board, about to get to, my last position was reactor panel operator. But you have people in the Navy who literally join and go straight to that position. And like people who are electrical, like the old electrical mechanics, we have to go up and we do three-year drafts in each position before we can advance to the next hierarchy. So we learn everything where if they join a submarine, they are a senior chief in that position or they are a senior chief in on the reactors. But I was just looking at the pay again. And one of them, you know, mean being a chief nuke on a reactor was on $12,000 a month at sea. And I thought, wow, you know what I mean? It's a lot of money compared to what we are on. And when they're away, you don't pay tax where for us being Brits, even though we're away for months and months and months, we still have to pay tax because the the vessel classed their sovereignty. So we still get taxed on we? Well, no, because, no,
1: actually, actually, when we're underway, we do get taxed unless we go into a, a, a intimate danger area or a hazardous duty area or a combat zone. Which, trust me, they go out of their way to make sure that you're there for the shortest amount of time. Same as us, because it used- you. Why-
0: we don't get medals. So there's something like the policy, because it's a uh, 30 days, 28 or 30 days after in there. So we'll go in the area till 27, come out for a day or two, and then go back
1: in. Well, and they they changed that policy because there was a lot of Air Force uh, personnel, from what I understand. I'm not saying that Air Force would ever cheat the system. Yes, they would. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That would, fly, <laughs> that would fly into Iraq with an air crew, um, on April 1st and fly out April 2nd and get the full month's worth of hazardous duty. So I think it was an extra four or $500. Uh, hazardous duty, intimate danger pay just for being in the country know. for one day. So they said, oh, okay, you get the whole month's pay. Or those of us on the ground were there for the whole month and got the same exact pay. On a medal. At least we got the, the, the little medal thing, but so yeah. Um, how was it being? I mean, it feels like the guys at the training command kind of set you up when they sent you over to the Trafalgar, thinking I get the weekend off. Oh, go 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 talk to the ship first.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was it was surreal. So, and the and the thing, people who were my instructors in my submarine qualification, like because we were six months later, they joined Trafalgar. One of well, one of them joined Trafalgar. You know what I mean? Because we were that short and. Yeah, it was it was a long deployment, but being eighteen, young, free, and single, pulling into some uh, some of the best places like the Philippines, you know what I mean? Going into Pearl Harbor on a boat, you know what I mean? Just seeing that side of it, Australia, you know, and different areas into Singapore for the handing over of Hong Kong was amazing. You know, in '97, we were in the harbor when they handed over Hong Kong, so we we sailed sailed Britannia out. So, the Queen was on Britannia when she waved goodbye to Hong Kong. We handed over Hong Kong back to the Hong Kong people. We were basically SMHMS HMS Trench and, and which decommissioned last Saturday, week today, after 32 years' service, which was another one of my submarines. Um, yeah, we, we sailed behind the basically. And I, I think that's one of the most surreal moments I've had in my life.
1: That's crazy. So, uh, speaking of surreal moments, um, again, being a, a on board the submarine you're get thrown right into it you're sleeping on torpedoes did yep. uh, I know very little about submarines but I do know when they leave harbor they're surfaced and at some point in time you submerge and sink but that being said I've had a lot of friends who have told me the sounds associated with diving are pretty intense <laughs> I love it. How, how first, was it
0: the first time? First time, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, the old snippet valve, you know what I mean? The old cheeks tense is like, oh, God. And it's <laughs> the, the angles and dangles. And, and it's the surreal because the hatch is shut. You know what I mean? That's it. You know, I've, I've had friends on that same trip. who were married, 30-year-old blocks, walking back and forth because of claustrophobia. And he was like, we're not servicing this boat. We're, we're not getting up for another two months, so... There's two options. You either stick with it or you're going to be sedated and you'll have to live with it. And it's one of those. So when we dive, we don't come up for no one. And that's what's good about the submarine service in the Royal Navy. You know what I mean? We we don't care what your feelings are in one way, but when we dived, we dived. That's it. And it was surreal because I was in the control room for the first ever dive. And You know what I mean? And my captain at the time was a guy called John Gower and he was relieved by Admiral Parr, who's now retired. Um... But yeah, it was just sat in, and just hearing them. And as the boat went down and tilted up, you think, oh, my God. And you're going to pass in 30 metres and you think, wow, And then you come up and then you hear all the different machine and all the air. Shh, shh. And think, God, I'm underwater, yeah. What happens? And, and it, it is a frightening experience to be going. But now I miss it because I can't go to sea again because of my injuries. I miss it. I do miss that noise. And I feel safer on a submarine than I do in an aeroplane.
1: So, so. so I I know uh you know Bill Longsworth who was with not us not out there.
0: because he's a he's a nuclear like me. Yeah. So. so
1: um in comparison I mean he always make he always made the joke that uh the surface navy were just targets and yeah, skimmers. Were you guys <laughs> skimmers? I like that one. So were you guys was a Trafalgar a uh Equivalent to a ballistic missile sub, or were you guys an attack sub?
0: Uh, we are hunter killer like Los Angeles class and your Virginia class
1: and Sea okay. okay, so um, you didn't have the big boom boom sticks, but yeah, you, you were down there. Yeah, how serious is a threat when you guys are down there?
0: Well, massively. Well, the thing is, we're always we always are alert as soon as we leave that wall. And we come out of the UK waters within a mile, two miles. we we close up ready. So as soon as we dive, we go straight into uh sonar alert quiet states, So patrol state. So especially when we were firing um, Tom Hawk missile and um, we were doing stuff where we should have been. And it's the cat and mouse, you know what I mean? And I lost time. Yeah, we, we're instantly closed up on watch, constantly alert, ready to go,
1: basically. So, what was a typical day like for you down in the uh, reactors?
0: So, so obviously we keep watches and we have a routine. So we, when we are forward of the submarine, which we call the front end, um, so you get engineers who work forward they work in the engine room. So they look after everything. So if you're forward with all the sonar weapons guys, my, it's a continuous six hours on, six hours off, for the full time you're awake. And then in the engine room we work a one in three routine so it's three hours four hours no, sorry three hours throughout the day and then four hours over evening because of the heat because it's up to 80 degrees in some areas of the engine room
1: oh so, wow is that wait? is that 80 fahrenheit or 80 celsius
0: celsius it is, yeah
1: Eesh, that's super hot that's like 150 ish
0: yeah some some areas it's that warm yeah you 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 lose. So on an average, if you're in the engine room, you're averaging about three to four stone loss a trip.
1: And we had that conversation about your damn weight system before we started this podcast, which is about 20 pounds.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, so you lose a lot. So you think you're losing about, yeah, it's going to be a good 56 pounds a trip. Damn. Easy. And yet you're eating four times a day as well, eating as much as probably just to the heat and sweat and, and stuff like that. So,
1: so again, uh, our sub guys will tell you, tell everyone that the best food in the Navy is a border sub.
0: Uh, hardest It's the hardest course in the Navy because no one's ever passed it. Eh? <laughs> the standard of food. It's one of those. If you got good chefs, it's a good boat. If you go rubbish chefs. You're going to have loads of weight loss. It's good for weight loss. <laughs>
1: so are you guys, um, while you're down there, are you, as doing your job, are you doing, do you have any idea what's actually going on around you outside the, the boat outside, outside of your spaces? Yeah. So,
0: so we're quite lucky because you routines and we we'll love, we we'll love like briefings and stuff like that. So, that's one good thing about us. I don't know much about the, the nuclear boys, the bomber boys, the Vanguard class submarines as well, but on Trafalgar class or Hunter killer class, a student as well. If we we're in an area, so we have a thing called daily orders every day, and it tells you all serials what we're doing, what we're prepping. So we're well informed, but you know what I mean? It is one of those no one knows until we're
1: underway. Right. That makes sense. So, um, you said you came in through Pearl you came into Pearl Harbor. Yeah,
0: that was amazing. Absolutely amazing.
1: Did you guys do the the man the rails? Were you? Uh, no, no, uh,
0: no, So we I'm in the engine room. Oh. So so we stay in the engine room. We're a bit like mushrooms, you know what I mean? Fed fed crapping kept <laughs> in the park. So all the all the sailors and all the sailors or the tactical system guys who are called dabbers, we call them dabbers on board submarines. Um, they're on the casing, so they come in on the casing, so every time we enter or leave harbour, they're always on the casing for all their berthing hoses and, and oh, all the okay. stuff like that. but we, we stay in the engine room because of the nuclear stuff side of things, we stay in the
1: engine room, closed up. So was that your first time in the US then?
0: Yeah, so it was, uh, no, tell it right, we'd actually pulled into Port Canaveral first, and then we travelled down and around all, all that side of things, but yeah, but don't be my first glimpse of it, because and it, the, the surreal thing is, I just watched the film Crimson Tide. <laughs> but, yeah. And What's obviously that? Gene Hackman with his dog and Denzel Washington, outside Admiralty, uh, your Admiralty steps, you know what I mean, the naval Admiralty steps, where we salute him, and then, I oh, thought, this is surreal, so I've got a picture somewhere in my house is about 15 of us engineers all saluting and like mimicking and having a laugh. And one of the lads is like, and one of the lads has got another lad with a bit of rope round his neck, like the dog for a tuna. <laughs> just typical British humor, if you know what I mean. But yeah, it's just real. I was quite lucky. I, I volunteered to go up on the back of one of your C 130s and I went round all the grave sites, of the Arizona, and I just, because it's a, a clear picture when you're up in the sky, you can see everything. I thought it was amazing. And that's what I liked about your history, if you know what I mean, the yeah. how you preserve all that type of stuff. And it was, I, it hit home how how surreal Pearl Harbor was for you lot, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, um, I remember going to Pearl Harbor twice. Uh, once I was there, my little brother was a Marine and I did, it was in between enlistments. I had taken a break, got out and then came back in in 2004 and did a tiger cruise with them. We So we cruised back on board the USS Peleliu. My only sea time is a sailor. That's pretty pathetic now that I said that out loud. But um, <laughs> yeah, we spent time, did the Pearl Harbor thing, did uh, the Missouri. And I don't know, in 97, I don't think the Missouri was there yet. I think they w- it was still in, uh, uh, in Long was, Beach. Yeah, she was Long Beach
0: with me.
1: But um, the Missouri, where, that, where it's at now, I don't know if you've been back to Hawaii since they moved it there. No,
0: no. Well, I was going to get on to Big Big po, because I, I keep in contact with Big Old Hulk. Yes. But yeah, that's one of the things I'm going to do when I retire, hopefully, or, or in the next couple of years. I'm going to just take a, about three months off and travel everywhere. So you might be expecting me soon knocking your door, Tommy. So.
1: Very good, very good. So, uh, but they do a little show, <laughs> and they have um, some of the footage from the pro, uh, from the attack on Pearl Harbor. I don't know if it's the sound system or if it's actually how bad it was but they show when the arizona was hit and just a massive the- concussion from the audio was unreal and then uh, i went back there back in 2008 i think and did that whole thing And it's it's an area that you really can't imagine
0: but uh, it's just the uh the severity of it you know what i mean being an engineer and then you're told that everyone is still trapped yeah. In the engine room. And it just hits home that even though it's a different Navy, that is a, a brother from a different nation who lost his life in the engine room doing what he loved and what he wanted to do. So,
1: yeah. Well, that's
0: and, and, the real
1: moment of it. And the, the amazing recovery efforts that they did. Uh, I think it was the Ohio, it was one of the ones that actually capsized. I think it was like two or three days later they were able to get guys out because Man. they were cutting through the steel from the bottom because the, the bottom the bottom of the ship was up. and those some of those guys made it out it's yeah but I mean you guys from what I've seen you guys have a ton of history in Britain especially around the Navy
0: yeah we still do so what we do and you we'll like to come over one year we as a submariner, we have November the 11th which is obviously Mark's armistice day from the first world War second world War celebrations on November 11th but the first weekend of November, we have a submarine remembrance weekend. And we are the only service that have our own weekend designated to, to what we do. So we go to London uh, and for the weekend, basically, there's about 3,000 submariners, past, present. You know what I mean? Um, and Yeah, it's just a weekend of remembering, going round and, and going to Westminster. And then we have a big parade. In, in, in the gardens for the submarines and yes, yeah, just a brilliant weekend so we're steeped in history if you know what I mean. Oh yeah. Because um, it's 120 years since the submarine service this year. Is it? So cool? yeah so 1901 we were formed the British submarine service so it's 120 years um, for the submarine service but obviously due to this brilliant COVID everything's been put back on the background hasn't it so.
1: Yeah. No, it has. So, speaking of subs, I take it your guys um, currently have been feeling a little bit extra stress due to the COVID.
0: Oh, so yeah. So, just you know, I mean, uh, I can't really go into much, but you know, I mean, where we've got to isolate, isolate, there's people who haven't been home for over a year. So,
1: I know, um like here, we just forgot which carrier it was. I think, it, no, not the Carl Vincent. I'll figure it out later. But um, we just had one that came home after 312 days at sea. Mad, isn't it? Yeah. I, it did. The, the COVID thing's getting ridiculous. But back to your story.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So, because I've been in the nucleus and COVID hit, we literally went on for two days. And then it was like, right, everyone in, we've got to keep training. So, we've been in constantly, no time off, no nothing for this for this, if you know we've worked through it and then obviously I went into phase one in January and then contracted COVID about six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, so I was ill for, and I'm still feeling the effects of it now, it's unbelievable, you know what I mean, so all my family's had it, I passed down to all my family, my wife's still ill through it and it is surreal and these people around the world, that goes, it's fake, nah, it is, it is something out there but it's, it is, we have to do our part, you know what I mean, yeah, quicker we put them the jobs because we're you know I means thirty two million people have already been jabbed in the UK now, which is good with the Oxford-Zeneca uh, vaccine. But yeah, it just yeah, quicker we can get out the work, stop wearing face masks. The better, to be honest, too absolutely Yeah, yeah it spread like wildfire, didn't it?
1: It did, and you know, it's it is what it is right now. We just need to work on getting past. uh some of the craziness, I think that's the important part.
0: It's, it's normal because people are going crazy, and some yeah. of the crap you nowadays is unbelievable.
1: So, back to you uh, in this first world around the world trip. How much of a how surreal is that thinking back that your very first cruise was an around the world trip? So it's very scarce, and I,
0: I, to be honest, you, I was lucky, very lucky to have was. Some some of the the best memories I've had in my naval career have been there, and some of my lifelong friends I've met. Uh, for example, one of my friends turns fifty, a chief chief web sonar guy. So we've just been allowed to have families in the garden again in the UK since a couple of days ago. So I'm going down from Portsmouth to Plymouth to surprise him because uh, we haven't seen each other for over a year or so, and he's godfather to my kids, I'm godfather to his kids, he was best man at my wedding, and vice versa, and we lived together before he met his wife, it was the reason why he met his wife, was because we were so drunk after one night out of going to the Army-Navy game, which I played in, (laughs) Uh, instead of staying with the Navy players, I jumped on the coach full of (laughs) submariners and come back to Plymouth. and we were that drunk, I propped him up behind a vending machine, a fag dispensing machine, and that's how he met his wife, and 20 years later, look, (laughs) Meet together <laughs> that, that's pretty cool it's my it's my fault they met oh yeah so oh. i'm going down to see him but some of my lifelong friends i met and some of the things i've done you can you can only dream of and i was quite lucky that every submarine. well i've done my first draft on profile was four and a half years so in that four and a half years i've done a world deployment in and out of america for canaveral kings bay you know what i mean uh, where else did we go? We went to Amsterdam. Jesus, yeah, we went to a few places. I had to, I had to think how many places we went for. I was quite lucky for the first four and a half years of my career; it was just jolly. They called jolly boats. Mm-hmm. And then in 2000, obviously, we came in for a maintenance period, and then 2001, we were doing a lot of running. So I was just, I, and what had happened? I had just left Trafalgar on the Friday, so I was getting drafted off the boat to do my career course. Um, and I so I left there on the Friday, and I was joining HMS Trenchant in a maintenance period as a little bit of standout time before I went and did my leading hands course, uh, career course, and then obviously 9/11 kicked off. So I was literally on course for four weeks. And I was playing for, I can remember you know, we were playing sport, we had a morning of sport and all I heard was LMEM Howells, LMEM Rhodes, report to HQ1 now. And I was like, oh, that's a bit strange. So we went to our head, like a HQ man in place and they were like, right, you're still in Dayton? I was like, yeah. And as I was looking in the building, I was like, what are you doing watching this film? And they were like, this ain't a film, man. I was like, that's surreal. They were like, this ain't the film top. And I was like, what do you mean? Says, this is happening now. These are the twin towers being hit. And even though I got gooseies for me, like, you know, and I was just like, you are kidding me. And they were like, and at the time, the second plane that just hit the, the second tower, the, the, is it the South or North tower? I can't remember. What tower
1: I always get them and, backwards.
0: Yeah. And it, it hit. And I was like, "Nah, you are pulling my leg. Yeah. You are taking the piss basically upon the pun. 10:00 piss, That's a really good film. they were like, next thing, big news, CNN, and all. that. was like, you no, know, Twin Towers have been hit. With reports coming in, and I was just fixated for about an hour, just watching all of it. And I thought, you know what, we're going to war, and it was a, it was like even Goosey's, Now my whole body's covered in Goosey's from that day. Like it's just madness. So me and my mate Ben, we, he was on, he was on a different boat at the time, and we were just, we were still in date. So I literally jumped in a car, drove to Plymouth uh, for the second, uh, for the twelfth, and for some strange reason, we had—I think people had already had intel—and you know what it's like. There was intel that something was going to happen, but no one knew where he was, how he was. So we had already prepped submarines to get to see him within forty-eight hours of the Twin Towers happening. Every available resource was ready to go. So Trafalgar had sailed literally the next morning. She had, I don't know where it is, and its and I've been a, a, a conspiracy theory, but I believe we knew as, as joint NATO allies, we knew something was going to happen. We didn't know what was going to happen, but we knew that something big was going to change how we think, how we operate. So, yeah. So I, I went down to Devonport and they were like, ah, Trafalgar sailed, don't need you. So they sent you all the way back to my career course. <laughs> so I drove back to, as I was driving back up, they were like, "Not half, turn around, you're flying out this evening and you're meeting Trafalgar at a certain place. And I was like, all right then. So she'd been at sea uh, for a day and a half. So I went all the way back to Plymouth. They were like, right, come into the office, went into the office, had all my kit ready. I was with my ex-partner at the time, told her, look, I'm going away, don't know when I'll be back. Obviously, because of what's happened, more um, intel was coming in. And, yeah, next thing I knew, four days after the event, so this is now September the 15th, I'm flying out to Diego Garcia oh, wow. to meet the Calga, And as the boat pulled in, everyone was like, what the bloody hell are you doing here? I was like, you know, gonna <laughs> come to sail. And, uh, yeah, we put a full payload on of Tomahawk, and they were like, right, we're going in. So I think it was about September the twenty-third. We'd actually got into area, and we, for for some reason, we've always trained in show ops on British submarines. That's why American commanders now, who were engineers and warfare, come and do our what they call perishes, which is our submarine command course. And we were literally a mile off land, firing Tomahawk in, and that was all over the news. First American submarine fires Tomahawk there. And then all they could see was us coming out of the water and we were like, American submarine hasn't fired us, it's been us. And it was, it was, really, I think it was like the fifth fleet or something was behind us and it was surreal. You know what I mean? So you've got a little Trafalgar class submarine firing Tomahawk and on the radar, you could see like a little blimp of the Tomahawks going in. And then it was like raindrops behind us. And that was the fifth fleet firing their Tomahawks. For every one we fired, they were firing like 150. <laughs> it was surreal. So... And, uh, I- because like I always remember, I, I was sailing, sorry. Um, I was sailing, as we were sailing, they were like, right, we're surfacing. And we were in the middle of, and we'd just gone through the Suez Canal into the area, into the streets down there. And we'd surfaced, and obviously we'd had the American Fifth Fleet, behind, or I think it was the Fifth Fleet. So you've got the aircraft carrier, you've got all the things, a couple of Los Angeles cars. And I'm just stood up in the fin of a submarine, and I was like, hey, goodness, it's dark up there. And then I was like... Look at that, and birds are going round in the circle, mate. It's like, that's not birds, that's Tomahawk missiles. <laughs> and I was like, wow, when they were just circling above us. And then every now and again, you just see one go, one go. And I thought, we're a warrior. And then, yeah, that was another trip, another 11 and a half months away.
1: <laughs> so, being a young sailor, um, yeah. even though you didn't push a button, what was how much did you know about what was going to happen prior to it actually happening?
0: No. Nah. No, everywhere was hush-hushed. And it was, everything was on a cuff-type moment, and we were just living day by day on the intel, a bit like yourselves, you know I mean, trying to find out as much as possible to get the right facts, because it was strange how we'd gone into a, a different place, gone into staging, we didn't know where we got because of Iraq, and obviously because of Iraq, and then, well, Afghan, then Iraq. And it was just, no one knew anything, whether we were going to go, whatever, what resistance we were going to meet, meet. You know I mean? We didn't know whether other navies from other who we were allies with them were going to come and get involved. And we were off the coast of Libya, you know what I mean? And stuff like that. And it was just, yeah, it was surreal to be honest
1: Really surreal. So, I mean, did you guys, um, we call it general quarters. I'm not sure what you guys call it. Yeah, there. emergency stations. Action did guys, stations. Oh, yeah. Did you guys get that or did they just start firing? No. So when we, we
0: come in, obviously we're, I was prepped Coming from Diego Garcia, we have a intel. And as soon as we left the wall, it was action stations, you know, diving stations. So we were locked up. You know, we, we were in full, free, you know, like yourselves, we were in full firefighting equipment. We were doing round-robin watches. So you, if you weren't on watch, you were in a, in a firefighting suit and you were sleeping wherever you could. And whenever you could, we were having meals in the engine room. And it, it was just 24 hours solid constantly for months on end, if you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. So you guys had that crazy op tempo for the foreseeable yeah. future. Yeah. Now, yeah. I, met a, uh, I met a Marine, a U.S. Uh, Marine, who was doing an exchange program with one of the British uh, ships. I forgot which one it was. In Iraq in 2003. And he said the uh, the way that they knew the war was kicking off was because they had turned off the beer lamp. Um,
0: <laughs> no beer. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Like, like
1: literally, he said, as soon as they did that, the the other officers that he was uh, sharing a room with were, yeah, we're going. It's going to start tonight or tomorrow.
0: So, so they they, they turn off the well. They close the bar on, on our submarines. Yeah, some people do drink. Wait, do you have we're a bar
1: mind. on your submarines?
0: Yeah, yeah. So in the mess, we got Damn. a mess. Yeah, in the mess, we can have tins. We're not dry like yourselves, you know. But like when the Hartford was in, when we when I was on the fucking Bazlin. Yeah, we the lads used to come down because on the Hartford it's a dry submarine. And on us, yeah, it was, yeah, drink as much as you can. So you're on about naval traditions. Naval traditions. You're entitled to two cans of beer per day per man. Even to this day, it's still tradition.
1: Oh, nice, nice. I did. I forgot where I saw Oh, it was a uh, another show that I saw uh that talks about navy about the navy in general and they were talking about how uh on I think it was the Queen Elizabeth they just opened up the the uh upper enlisted bar so as they explained it the lower enlisted gets mm-hmm. beers yes yeah. yeah, you
0: know yeah yeah
1: the uh the upper enlisted officers get uh beer and wine and liquor
0: yeah, spirits, up spirits. We still do now. Yeah. So we still toast. We have we, years ago we had grog until he got rid of it in the 70s, 80s. Um, but yeah, it's so up spirits. So some sometimes of every year, the wife, uh, the wife, sorry, the queen. So the queen will always send out the signal saying have a tot on me. So it's up spirits, so that's what it is, where you, you have a free tot and then basically the queen pays for it. So one top normally turns into a bottle and yeah, so on and so forth. But it is one of those, it is just like yourselves. It's a work hard, play hard culture and it has to be, you know what I mean? And that's always been the nature of beast for 25 years of my naval career, really.
1: Yeah. So speaking of uh, the Queen, how much does the royal family or the Queen herself play in the British Navy culture?
0: Well, massively, massively. Well, Prince Charles, Prince Andrew. Um, both commanded uh, Type 21 frigates, Type 22 frigates, so they were commanders of ships. Um, and Prince William was actually on HMS t- Turbulent and qualified for his Dolphins, so he's an actual qualified submariner. Um, but yeah, for the you think Prince Philip, who's the Queen's husband, he's Admiral of the Fleet. You know what I mean? He, he was in the Navy in the Second World War and a very decorated man. So the history of the Senior Service is. Is massive with the Queen, if you know what I mean. So like your daughter, Prince Anne, uh Princess Anne is a is a admiral. So yeah, the, the senior service plays a massive part with the Queen. And that's who we and at the end of the day we still we still come under the Crown and we fight for for it, if you know what I mean. And that's been the British way for the last 350 years plus. So yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, I just didn't I didn't know whether I mean because for most of British culture it's kind of a figurehead. I didn't know how much it actually played in to you guys. Cause I mean, like you said before with history and with tradition, outside of us, no offense. Uh, there is not another navy in the world to be really even considered something that we should really truly worry about, except for maybe China.
0: I'm Russia. Uh, their submarines are phenomenal. You can't. Their, their subs can't. are
1: yes. <laughs> <laughs> they, they their are surface ships.
0: <laughs> yeah. Their surface but, um,
1: ships, on the other hand.
0: No, yeah, just noisy big things. But yeah, um, to be honest with you, yeah. their submarine fleet, you can't. And and people say, why would you say that? You know, what I mean, Chinese, yeah, Korea, yeah, but the Russians, us and yourselves, yeah, the Russians are just they are. They, I'd say a. With us, they're on par with us, if not a little in 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 the league of us, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah. For
0: what they do and it's that brother, it's our brotherhood, in you know what I mean? I I can't really tell you about ships because I've never been on a ship in my in my naval career. But well, submariner wise, yeah, you take the hat off because some of them guys on them things. And yeah, so even even that, going back to the Kursk, you know what I mean? That that era when we were we were up in area. Um, when it all happened, if you know what I mean, and you just got to feel for any nation, that includes anyone, it's like the San Juan, the Argentinians, you know what I mean, which which lost the submarine. We Groups of our British submariners went out there to help them out, if you know what I mean, search for them. So, yeah, it, it's one of those, but on par with ourselves and you, the Russians are up there. They are up there. They're phenomenal.
1: Yeah. The um. Well, I mean, I don't think the United States Navy's had a major sub-loss in years no have you guys had one
0: no no not for years no no we've had this incidents been on board but you know what i mean so um it is a true saying we work hard and we train hard and i've been in scary situations and the way we've designed our vessels and then i can't fault it and the way we train and still train to this day and the only as you said do we have to be hard on our people and we are on hard on our people because, pardon the pun, if shit hits the fan, we need to know what we're doing. Yeah. You know I've mean? I, I sat there on a, on a submarine in a flood and locked eight of my fellow shipmates in an engine room, shutting the door. No water type of door. On. It was literally dealt with in seconds. But for that initial 30 seconds of shutting that door, you're thinking, wow, I've just locked eight of my friends. In and you cool. train for that. And when you sit back and I've seen people go, oh, wow, what did you do on... British humour. as soon as we've done it, do you want a cup of tea? Yes, i have a cup of tea. and just sat down and had a cup of tea and just laughed about it, you know? Because we train, we train and how we design our boats and I've got got the utmost respect for our designers and what they do and how we operate our submarines is. is world-class and you know that anyway. Yeah. That is when the American Navy come over and train with us all the time because of the
1: nature of the beast and what we do. So how often do you guys get to interact with... um... Ground forces, then, or do you ever?
0: No, never. We I mean, were at sea, so when we were in Afghanistan, Iraq,
1: we uh, we had submarine supporting ground
0: forces and yourselves. So all our all the allied forces were being supported, just like the U.S. Navy was supporting our ground troops and everything. But as as we said, your budget, your budget for your your armed forces is massive compared to ours, and we've upped ours now, which is a good thing. But just. The way the future was and the support you guys got—it is unbelievable. But we have to make do with the equipment we got. I know it sounds stupid, but yeah, we we up the the rigorous training maintenance we do to keep these is is phenomenal. And we've now realized that we need to do more because we've gone into it. we went into a part where we we'll only fix it if we need to. But now it's a case of let's get it done, let's get it sorted because we need it. And as I said. Detriment, uh, detriment is that uh, HMS trench and my submarine I spent six and a half years on, uh, decommissioned last Saturday after 32 years service. So you know what I mean, so that's 32
1: years of a nuclear submarine. That's so, incredible. I mean, yeah. I, I could I could picture that for an aircraft carrier, the Enterprise I think did 50 years. I think the Carl Vinsons is come Carl Vinson's coming up on that. But there's something about a submarine that I'm surprised they can last that long just structurally.
0: We do refit. So we do make big maintenance periods after 10 years in certain parts. And we do upkeep, check all the hull valves constantly. So we have a life cycle of a submarine and we constantly do it. But now now the way they're designed, you don't have to refuel them. So they just come in and get all the hull valves done, structural work done. And if there's a problem, we do. And there's so much testing and engineering-wise you know, what I mean, my last job as an engineer, you, it was hard, and I'm not gonna like people say, oh, I did. but just the workload was phenomenal. You know, what I mean, but that's the nature of the beast because we we were so, and we are now we short of manning. You know, what I mean, because where where you've got so many people to choose from, and you're you can call people, pardon the term, and get rid of them, we can't. You know, what I mean, because just to get someone trained to be an RPO can take up to eight years, nine years to get them right they are. So, so are you? Are you guys giving bonuses then, or uh, we were, but we don't do that anymore. No don't do that. But like in the American areas, as I said, your nukes, they get a signing on bonus for every five years they sign on for, and it's good money. <laughs> I mean?
1: It's good that, money. Yeah. I... yeah. The, the nukes typically are in the higher bracket. Um, a bonus. I know it's
0: six figures every five years they get paid. Uh,
1: I think it's got it's actually gone down significantly in like the last couple cycles, but it, yeah, it used to be. 100G just for signing up or just for a <laughs> That's what ship.
0: I said, I come over and said to Bill do you want me to join your Navy? I could do it 100G <laughs> right now you oh,
1: know. I could too um, <laughs> <laughs> But so you you um, continue doing this, you go over to probably more than just those two ships I'm assuming or boats.
0: Yeah so about have had Trafalgar, trenchant um, I've done HMS Suburb and Spartan when she was decommissioned and then I joined HMS Torbay which was another submarine which decommissioned two years ago um I've done a couple of years on her went on a career course for a couple of years and then joined Torbay for a little a year and then joined Triumph and then I got injured
1: which so, let's let's talk about that so you um when I met you and this is not insulting but you were a mountain of a man um smallest in my family tommy i'm the smallest in my family I, I i have a hard time believing that but okay um so being what you're like six three six four
0: yeah six six two i am yeah yeah i'm so, 24 now, I, I was yeah
1: i can't do math uh but that's that was a big guy back then but you were also when i met you you were kind of into the weight training and and all of that so you weren't a fat guy you were just a big massive guy so i'm still trying to figure out you i have been on not nuclear subs but you know um museum subs how did you function well you get used to it but there's
0: people taller me on him i had a friend called we called him albert hall because his second name was hall um Damien hall we used to call him albert hall off after the landmark but his nickname was tiny he was six foot nine six foot he, nine on a sub yeah and this there's, there's we got a john who's a one-off so he's about six foot seven there is tall people on him they hunched down and everything like you know. i mean at one point tiny we had to cut the hole out of the bunk space we so could actually get his feet through one of the bunks we so could go to sleep on a bottom <laughs> bunk and he used to shower in the engine room because he couldn't fit in the showers
1: <laughs> but so um being in those cri- in those cramped kind of quarters like I said, you were maintaining when I met you uh, the best that you could, your physical fitness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there, do you guys have workout spaces or how does that work for you? So we have, we have rowing machines
0: between things, but because I was so big, I just hit my upper body on them. And it used to be like a I could say like a half a meter square. So about a meter square of a box and we had some weights and we used to like squeeze ourselves and they still do now into different positions to do weights on board and we got a bike in the front end of the boat so you're constantly forward while you cycle so yeah yeah it's not there's not much you can train on them to be honest with you. but on the big nuclear ones the bombers vanguard they have gyms on it because of the room for the missiles so
1: oh okay so they they have a lot more space than on those oh, yeah, yeah no no so you were injured In what, 2014? 15, yeah, 15, yeah. Uh, Do you mind talking about that?
0: No, so I actually injured myself in 2005, 6 And because I was playing rugby, I was a big bloke. Um, I got injured on a submarine uh, in an emergency. And I caught my neck. And at the time, I thought, oh, I'm in pain. I lost feeling down one side of my body. And because we were on patrol, we couldn't surface. And then after about six weeks, he'd come back and they would ask, ah, you just pulled a muscle. So in 2015, I was up in Lane on Triumph and something happened and I fell again. But I'd always had like this niggling on my neck and everything. I'd had an operation on my neck in 2010 to rectify it. So within two months of having a major neck operation, I was back to sea on a submarine. You know what I mean? And they were like, ah, you'd be fine. So in 2015, <laughs> I, I injured myself again. I thought, dude, my shoulder's gone. I couldn't really grip, nothing on my right-hand side. I weren't sleeping. I was having about half-hour sleep a day. So I went for an MRI scan. So I travelled all the way from Scotland down to Plymouth, which is 520 miles to have this scan. I, I went, just, home up. Yeah, went home went to see my wife and my my, and my kids, because we were actually doing a, a maintenance period in Faslane instead of Plymouth, called a displacement ramp. And we'd worked so hard, me and my mate, because there was only two of us in the watchkeeping position, so we ended up doing 10 and a half months worth of duties of one in two, so 24 and 24 and 10 and a half months, day and And we'd have snippets. So I went home, had this MRI, went back up, and then I had a phone call about a month later saying, oh, are you coming home this weekend? I said, well, I'm travelling home tomorrow. This is on a Wednesday. You're travelling home on a Thursday? I was like, yeah, no problem. So I left at five o'clock in the evening on a Thursday in Lane, got to HMS Drake's sick bay about seven o'clock in the morning, after traveling overnight, sat down in the doctor goes, Are you all right, Tap? Because I've known known this doctor for years, Sue thought. I was like, Yeah, yeah. She goes, Are you sure? I was like, Yeah, yeah. They were like, Can you ring your wife? And I was like, What? She goes, Have you been home yet? I said, No, I've traveled overnight, gay yeah, yeah. I'm go weekend, I'm back up in Scotland on Sunday. So I don't want to be alone. I want to get home, have some time with the wife and kids, and get back back to the boat because we were sailing soon. And they were like, We need to ring your wife. Next thing this four four-ringer captain come in. Who's was a commander, like GP? Uh, captain GP, a doctor. And he goes, how are you feeling? Petty Officer?" And I was like, I'm fine. He was like, have you run your wife? And I was like, wait, stop there. <laughs> I was thinking the worst day. I thought, oh, I've probably got some disease or cancer, something like yeah. that. And I was like, stop. Like, stop effing there, you know what I mean? I was like, what's going on? And like, we've just had a red flag come up on your MRI. How do you wash? And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, how have you been washing? I said, Submariner, just squirting links, you know, messing around. He goes, stop being a dickhead, Tav. How'd you wash? I said, oh, showering. He goes, good, because if you had had a bath, you would be dead by now. And I went, "Hey." Eh? He goes, so next, about 20 minutes later, my wife's coming. So my wife's crying. And I'm like, what's the matter with you? She goes, they've just told me you're going dead for an hospital. I was like, what? They were like, yeah, we're prepping. They've just rung a surgeon. You're going to hospital now to get operating on I was like, no, nah, I'm not, I'm going home. You know what I mean? Typical Matlow head on me, you know what I mean? Navy head on me. I was like, No, nah, I'm I'm sailing next Tuesday. I'm I'm back up in Faslin, we're sailing and I'll be home by Christmas. They were like, you're going to Derriford. And literally, ambulance turned up, jumped in the back of ambulance, straight to Derriford. Four and a half hours later, I died twice. They cut my neck open, removed two discs from my neck. And I ended up being on a life support machine for six weeks. That was it. Told my naval career was over. And at the time, I was playing high-level sport. My sport was over. I was representing the Navy in Great British trials for Japanese sword fighting kendo. And basically, I was told it was over. And I'd I'd never be able to do anything I wanted to again. And that just closed my world down then, massively. So after, after about six weeks of in and out, you know what I mean, of not knowing, I come round, my wife had told me what had gone on. I was like, Oh, I'm feeling fine. And I thought, Oh, I can't feel the side of my body. I'm finding a you new know, a tube in my neck there. You no know, breathing for me, eating for me. And I'm thinking, I can't speak. I, I could blink. I couldn't feel my hands. I couldn't feel my feet. I thought, Shit, you know what I mean? I'm, yeah. I'm fucking paralyzed. And so my wife was like, You all right? And I was, you know, I started to tear up and I was thinking my worst fear is and, and I, I how people in wheelchairs. I've got utmost respect for people like that and people who've been paralyzed from neck down and still. It just, my world crashed. I thought, wow, I can't move. From six weeks ago where I was able-bodied, running, training, everything, I can't move. And you know what I mean? I just stayed there. And it was about a day and a half later that everything worn off and obviously I come on properly. I started getting my speech again. And I was thinking, I still can't feel my hands and feet. And it was just, I think it was about three days of constant, just constantly looking, you know what I mean? And inner inner, in how can I say me being like my inner self? Next thing I was like, I can move my hands. I was thinking, right, I can move my hands, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my feet moving. I thought, oh, and what had happened? Where they, where that operation had, they give me apertures, which had basically numbed the nerves. And as it worn off, I started feeling stuff again. And, and the relief that came on after it was unbelievable, you know. So I spent another week in hospital and then I was sent to Hasler Company, which is a massive rehab facility, which is brilliant for injured servicemen. And I was told I was going there. So I ended up. Ended up going there, and at the time I felt fine, you know, I thought, I'm going to get back to work, I'm going to get back on a submarine, and everyone's telling me you can't, you know, you're injured, that's it, you're injured, and I thought, I don't care. So I joined Hasler Company, which was back in 20, end of 2015, beginning of 2016, and I still couldn't use my arm, I was trouble walking, speech was crap, so over over a matter of months I learned myself, and it sounds mad. I had to rewrite every new, every human instant again for me, you know what I mean? Inside myself to make myself breathe properly, to speak properly, move my hands properly, move my legs properly. And it was hard, you know what I mean? And I I started and I didn't realize it myself, I started going down into that depression, PTSD type route. And I shut myself off from everything, from all my friends, my family. um, And I just, I just, how how can I explain? And I say this because I help a lot of people in Britain who have PTSD and went through what I do. I went into a room and in that room there was one door in and one way out. But when I went in there, that way out just was masked by the four walls or the three walls in front of me. And it, there was no light in it. And it sounds bad in this And there was no light in this room. There was no air in this room. And I felt trapped inside myself. So about six months, about yeah, about five months after I'd had my neck operation. I couldn't I couldn't pull this. It's taken me near five years to get that back. None of my tendons in my neck, I couldn't really turn my neck properly. I had no strength. I had a pain in my shoulder, and I'd always had pain in my shoulder. I'm thinking, this ain't right. So I went for another MRI with a specialist, a guy called Mark Brinsden, an absolutely brilliant, brilliant ex navy commander, surgeon. I'd known him for years through rugby and stuff like that, playing sport. He did an MRI. He says, have you ever dislocated your shoulder? I went, no. I said, I heard it back in 2006 when I had my initial neck injury. Um, But apart from that, no. He goes, well, what has happened? He says, you've actually ripped your shoulder, dislocated it, and it's popped back in, but it hasn't fully gone into the joint, so it's half in and half out. And I was like, what? He says it's born its own joint, so I'd actually, from playing sport and being an ignorant person and training a lot, I'd actually created an extra joint, more of a ball all, into my shoulder socket. I was thinking... I haven't had a tricep muscle for years because I'd injured it. I hadn't had a tricep muscle. And I am thinking, he goes, That's why you're hungry tricep muscle. He says, You just damaged all the nerves down your arm. He says, Didn't you do that? I said, No, I just ignored that. I thought it was just a pulled muscle. Because <laughs> for years the navy had told me it was a pulled muscle or a trapped nerve. I thought, ah, I just get on with it. And he was like, You and the exact words, you go, like, you can tell you from wells you village idiot. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I uh, so, I ended up having a massive operation to rebuild my shoulder um, back in 2016. So, after that uh, operation, I started working on myself, and it came to a crunch. Like it was the end of 2016, we couldn't 2017. I, I, I'd had a frozen shoulder from the operation, so I couldn't really move my I'd gone into the darkness. So, I ended up having another rebuild on my shoulder uh, just before I come. Yeah, just before I come to Wounded Warriors, about the November before the Wounded Warrior. And I just had an operation, and I'd had other little operations to fix things. And over the thing, I tried DCHM, DCHQ, uh, DCMHQ, sorry, mental health thing. I tried different things. And I just, one morning, I woke up on the edge of the bed crying. I thought... yeah, so yeah, a 39 year old man after experiencing no remorse, you know what I mean? Helping others out, being a strong, being a father, being a husband. And I was crying and I was struggling to breathe. And I turned around to my wife, I said, Close the door, I don't want my kids, because I've never cried. In, apart from being just emotional when something good happens, I've never cried. I, I think it's twice in, ever in my life I've ever cried Cried in front of my wife. You know, what I mean? I'm not one of them guys that uh, that show. show that side of emotions because of the training I do and stuff like that. And I sat on the edge of the bed, Tommy, and I I was like struggling for breath. And I started crying. I went, I'm dying. My wife went, Shut up, you idiot. <laughs> exactly. Typical, typical. I love idiot. your she wife. Went, Shut up, you fat idiot. She goes, Set up, you fat idiot. She goes, There's nothing wrong with it. I said, I think I'm dying, yet. Yeah. And at the time, I, I was under a guy called Bruce Ossopp, an ex special forces doctor. And he'd worked with the SPS in and out of Afghanistan for years. And he was the doctor looking after me in my, in my rehab. So I rang him up and I was like, Bruce, I don't really feel good. And he heard my breathing. He went, right, put the phone down, get the hospital now. He said, how are you going to get there?" I said, I just jumped in the car. <laughs> he said, well. So I literally jumped in the car with my shoulder in a sling. Because I've got an automatic car. And I drove like four miles to the hospital. As I called there, Bruce is there with me. And literally, he saw me, chucked me on a bed, hit me with two shots of adrenaline straight into my each leg, and I just come out of this thing. I was like, oh, "What the?" And I'd gone into medical shock, and my body was actually shutting down from the from the amount of operations I had. And I've looked into it since, I and mean, it's a it's a, a condition people don't really know about. That shock, if you have so many operations in a short time, you can actually go into a like a clinical shock, like an or a medical shock. And I thought it was just a myth. And he was like, yeah, you're lucky because I, I, I was struggling to go to the toilet. And it sounds mad. But yeah, but slowly my body was shutting down for the amount of operations and obviously a big stem of it was the PTSD and depression. So I just said to him, I'm, I'm in bits here, Doc, you know what I mean? And I, I talked to a nurse, uh, like a mental health nurse, really, really good woman called Tracy. And I sat with her one day, and she says, "Can you talk?" I said, oh, "I can talk," but she says, "You don't like talking." I said, "No, no, because normally I'm the person people come to to listen. You know, I listen to people. And I said I'm not that person to air my washing out, if you know what I mean." And yeah, I started going to DCMH, and it was it was the December just before the January we or the February before we are doing. So the Navy had paid for this specialist to come in in mental health, and. Um, I started doing a lot of, uh, it sounds maddening, a lot of self-rehab, like soul-search, soul-searching, trying to get back to the person I was. And I sat there, and this guy come in, and it nearly had paid this specialist to come in. And as he come up to me, I sat there, I said, hello, I'm Petty Officer, so I was your tap He says, and the first thing he said to me, he goes, I know what's wrong with you. I said, excuse me. He goes, I know what your problem is. I can fix you. And I just looked at him, Tommy, and, and, and swore. And anyway, I went, fuck off. <laughs> he went, what? I said, fuck off. I said, you winding me up here? He goes, I, I'm an es- expertist. I know where your problem is. I said, tell me what my problem is then. And this captain and this commander's looking at me to think, he, where is he going with this? And the commander I knew very well. And uh, I said, so what is my problem then, mate? He goes, oh, um, you've got clinical depression. I went, no, I haven't. I said, is that what you're branding it? He goes, well, I'm the expert, yeah. I said, are you really? So I got up and I, I said a few swear words to him, me, <laughs> in the good old naval tradition, British naval tradition, told him to wind his neck in. And I walked out. And this captain came after me. He goes, where are you going, Petos Owls? we paid money for this kind of guy. I said, well, can I have his money? Because he's full of shit. I said, you're wasting my time, you're wasting his time, can I have his money? And this guy went, can we have a chat? I said, no. I said, the next time I speak to you, with no no uncertain terms, the only time you'll speak to me is on a life support machine after I've knocked your head off your shoulders. I said, you're full of crap mate." And he says, no, no, tell me where I'm going wrong." And I went, do you really want my answer? Do you want the right answer or do you want the Tafowell's answer? <laughs> so what is the right answer? I say, well, well, you're a specialist. You've got more degrees than a compass. You're, you're the specialist. In this. I said, do you want my answer now? And I give him your commandant. And I sat back down and I said, oh, can I have a cup of tea? So they got us a wet, what we call a cup of tea in the Navy. I said, you're not the expert of anything. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, you're the subject matter expert. You've done all the training. You've seen people in different names. I said the only person who's the expert of what I got is me. And he went, "What do you mean?" I said, "Are you my body? Are you, are you feeling what I feel? Have you been what I've been through?" And he went, "No." I said, "Rest of my case, and I'll cost you seven thousand pounds." And he went, "Excuse me." <clears> I said, "Well, you told me you're an expert of me, but i just told you I'm an expert of me, and I've just told you right. So can I have your can I have the seven thousand pound that you pay now?" And his commander's like chuckling, going, go on, how else? I said, so this, I said, I work with a bunch full of Royal Marine Special Forces guys. Do you know their problem? And he went, yes. I said, no, you don't. I said, you're a subject matter expert to give them help to find out what their problem is. You can't diagnose someone by looking at me. I don't even know you from Adam, sir. So with that, I said, look, it was nice to meet you. And I walked out. (laughs) And everyone's like, where are you going? I said, ah, he shit. Him, you know, ran it. and I've got a, I've got a tattoo on my arm there and it says never above you, never below you always beside you and I've always lived by that thing and from that day onwards I went home and my wife just and it was like a, a light bulb woman bang and something woke me up and opened that door in that dark room and said it's time to come back out now it's time for you to help someone so another British serviceman doesn't have to listen to that crap again you know what I mean because there's some really good mental health nurses doctors out there who sit and listen to you and diagnose you and, and guide you where you need to go not tell you that they are a bit like yourself with your trauma and your injuries and where you had the explosion out in Iraq or whatever you was when when you you know what i mean yeah, and yeah
1: definitely
0: I just, yeah and I just from that day it was like a light bulb moment to me and when I come to see you when we were out in wounded warrior just speaking to some of your guys and they were like and, and just telling my story, and I was thinking, and, and I've lived, and from that day, my motto was, fuck them all, accept one of bollocks to him. And everyone looks at me and goes, and I've lived I'm not and they're like, what do you mean? The only person who's going to heal you is you. Yep. You can have all your loved ones tell you, you can have all your family tell you, you can have your best friends, you can, have, I could sit here now, Tommy, and say, you need to go down this route, you need to go down that route. But the only person who's going to make you go down that route is you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From yeah. people in, and I, I come up with a philosophy after like being out in America. I, I started my own company just before, so I've got my own company that teach security and training to veterans and servicemen and get. I've got 178 ex-serving veterans, injured people, into work over the last three years now. So it's a big part. You're, you're in my, my my office in my in my shed where I employ the stuff now from the thing and I do a lot still, and I've worked with people with PTSD and people from Divings, and I've worked it out, and, and everyone laughs at me, and I say, do you, do you know what it is? And they say no. I say, my philosophy is, if I can wake up in the morning, Tommy, and I take that deep breath, and I'm still alive, everything else for the rest of the day is a bonus.
1: That's a and good that's a, philosophy. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, I get
0: step, I get out of bed, I take that deep breath and I think I'm alive because I've got people and friends just like myself who are not, who would love to be and now, breathing the same air we are. But instead of scratching a box six feet under, they're not. You know what I mean? And I, I work with people and that's why I say when people and I've got friends now, I've got people who work for me who are all like serving, got massive problems and I helped a lot. And I just sat down with one of them the other the other day and he was on, well, well I was on the phone to and he was like, I'm, I'm in pain, I'm in pain. And I said, what are you in pain for? He goes, oh, I can't get over it. And obviously it's something that happened in his past in Afghanistan, losing a friend. And I said, so when you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you do? He goes, well, I get up. I said, before that, what do you do when you open your eyes? He goes, no. I said, you take that big deep breath. And he went, yeah. I said, you alive? And he went, yeah. I said, is your, is your friend? He went, no. I said, would you like to be alive? And he went, yeah. I said, so that breath's telling you you're alive. Everything you do from that initial breath of waking up, waking your eyes and you tick, I think big think is a bonus whether it's a good day, a bad day or you know what I mean? You you, you stub your little toe on the a paper cut. That's just niff-naffing trivia. You're still alive and, I, and that's how I feel now. You know what I mean? So even when I have a bad day, I'm, I've, I've done a lot of coaching and mentoring now. I'm now a life coach. I sit there with people and say, listen to me. I can sit here and waffle on all day but at the end of the day, only you can do you. No one else can do it. Like yourself. Like with your this now with your podcast, with your hunting. You know as well as me. You're you like my my sanctuary is now if I have to go and do something and I need a break, I just jump on my new brand new road bike and I go and do twenty miles. As soon as I've done my twenty miles in my head, come back and it's refreshed, you know what I mean? Or I need to go away for a, a couple of hours just for a walk across the seafront or something like that. And that's that's my therapy, but I'm alive.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. So when I met you, you were already starting to weight train again. I remember showing up a couple times at the uh, when we were going to different events and there you were pulling down weight. So have you taken any pride in basically telling the doctors to fuck off and yeah, you're going yeah. to be who you are. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, if I could have a, an emblem or, or a motto on my t shirt, it'd be that. <laughs> it, it would be the big F off sign, you know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, and, and at the time, and I, I realized me being in pain is what's keeping me alive. And it sounds stupid. You know what I mean? Everything happens, I'm, 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 and people laugh at me. Everything happens for a reason, I believe, no? From that, from that moment, I, I come out of that room. You know what I mean? Everything happens for a reason. The reason why I'm injured, or the reason why I is to do good. And, I, and it's about paying it forward. You know what I mean? Hands, hands across the pond type stuff. You know what I mean? And I, I say to all the all the people, if you ever want to ring me, ring me. And I still get phone calls of people at two, three in the morning. And my wife goes, "Oh, who's on?" I was like, "Such and such." "Are they all right?" And my wife knows now that I will never turn my phone off to no one. Like yourself, some of the some of the messages you sent me because of the time difference. Yeah, I'm. Mean, as soon as I see them, I'm back, back onto it. But yeah, and it it got to the point where I was on so many tablets. They were giving me a tablet to sort out the pain, and then oh, I'd be on. You another- mean,
1: you mean a, a medication?
0: Yeah, medication. So I'd be on medication, one form of medication for the pain. Then I'd be on another form of medication to counteract the side effects of that tablet. Then another form of medication to counteract that. And it got to the point where I was on about 10 different medications a day and they were giving me all results, which was diluting all the problems. And I thought, I looked into it and I thought, you know what? I'm not getting better. All I am doing is masking the fact that I'm injured. Yeah. Yeah, And that's what we spoke about when we were over in 2018. And and from at least 2017, I've never taken a painkiller. So if I injure myself, pain... And the and, and good term, when we spoke about it, when we were over in and the, the Australian, and I think it was Pete and his mate, uh, Dave, who I speak to quite a bit out there, the other army guy who was Pete's friend. And we were all sat in our breakfast bar, remember? We just listened to music and we were all think And someone said, what's, and I asked the question, so what do you believe pain is? And they went, weakness leaving the body. Pain is keeping you alive. That's what's making you alive. Pain's, pain's not a hindrance, pain is just telling you, you're still your buddy. You know what I mean? You've got a job to do. And when I speak to people about it, they go, but pain hurts. It only hurts if you allow it to hurt. If you can control your pain by doing yoga, by cycling, by swimming, by getting up and going for walks, like yourself, how, how you mask yours, or how you do it, you go up into them hills, mate, and you go hunting, that's your release. You know what I mean? And, and this is what people don't realize. It. It's what, find, what you find is your coping mechanism is the way you handle your pain because you'll never get rid of pain. You'll never, ever get rid of pain. You can manage it, you can handle it, but you'll never get rid of pain.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you on that. So um, as you've gone into this new career path of uh, being a mentor and teaching these new young sailors, how yeah. much of your story plays into how you interact with them?
0: Massively. So where, where we used to use the authority and image 10 years ago, I would be do your job. You know, swear and I them And it's a little bit of advice. Sit down with them and, and, and chat with them and, and say to them, you know what I mean? I'm not here to fail you. Only you can fail. You know what I mean? And you know, if they slip up, I don't go down the them. I just give them the disappointed dad chat. And and people say, oh, where's your story? And I, I've still got a photo on my phone of me on a life support machine in a bed, and say that was me five years ago. If I can get out of that and run with you, cycle with you, because I'm clinically disabled, I should have been in a wheelchair, but I will never do that. And the day, and as I said, that day when I w- woke up, and we'd always vowed, and it sounds mad, then my best, I've got four really good mates in the navy, and we all like brothers, we go on a piss together. And we've always said if any of us ended up in a wheelchair or or paralyzed, that would be it. One of us would end that person between us. And it came to that crunch where I I asked my missus to call my friends and they come in and I said, You owe me a favor. And they were like, nah, nah. You know what I mean? They were like, nah, you Welsh knobhead. nah. You've got no chance. And and we still talk about it. And it was a surreal moment. So, like my friend who's turning 50 next week. That was the first time, apart from being married and seeing his three boys be born, that's the first time I've ever seen my friend Donald Keys, Caps Keys, cry. And he went, I can't do it. I can't do it. He says, you're my brother. And I said, mate, you promised me you can't break a promise. And he goes, well, we all break promises. And that was the exact words the lad said. We all have to break a promise. And the promise is, you're getting through this. And that's why now... I've decided, and I, I see the people and I tell them about the journey I've got and how I help people and how I try and get servicemen or veterans into work. And, you know, what I mean, with my business, I don't earn a penny. It all goes back to helping people. So, you know, what I mean, my wife gets kicked off because I've got like embroidery machine stuff like that in this office. And yeah, most of it just first aid goes to helping charities and different things like that. So it's been a lot it's been a lot going on since the last time we seen you to be honest. With you.
1: Yeah it has that's crazy. So I'm glad to see that your business is working out for you. How do you manage both the navy on these 20 hour days and still got 4
0: hours left for I me. Mean. Still 4 hours yeah. left.
1: So are you guys actually uh, like with us when we went to when we go to boot camp there's a company commander i think they call them recruit division commanders. Typically, there's two, if not three of them, uh, and at least one of them spending the night at the barracks every night. Are you doing that?
0: Yeah, so the first two weeks, um, me and my leading hand, so we're both DIs. We've got a warrant officer, and then we've got a Lieutenant, Lieutenant Commander, which is equivalent to Well, it's the same as yours, really. Um, so warrant officer is equivalent to like your CWOs. You know what I mean? Like, like Clint was when we come over. Our time is a warrant officer. So he, he lives on the base anyway because he lives in Scotland and obviously he's a weekend traveller. Um, but yeah, we, between me and him for the first two weeks, everyone's there, someone's there every night. So we get up at five in the morning and we're not going to bed till midnight. And that's constant. So even now, um, last week was supposed to be an easy week. We were out in the field with them for two days. Uh, we, we we're in for quarter to seven every morning and we're not coming home till at least 10 o'clock in the evening after we sort them out. So it's 10 weeks training, we do 10 weeks training. We have a week off to recuperate because it is a lot. And then we've got a prep week where we have to prep for the next course coming in. And then we straight into another 10 week course. And that's for two years. <laughs> Damn, man. <laughs>
1: uh, that's insane. So um, as far as your future plans, are you you said you want to try to stay until you're 65.
0: Yeah, but um, if there's any jobs out there, any jobs for nuclear engineers in Texas, I think get me out there because I love the UK, but I don't want to stay in the UK. I want, I want to, I want to go and live life. So I have been looking in America for nuclear jobs or, or stuff out there. You know what I mean. So I just want to, or otherwise it's retirement to Spain. And the only problem I want to have, Tommy, is what I'm going to eat that day and if I'm going to have a beer by the pool.
1: I feel you. Do you um do you miss being on the uh, piers. Yeah. Is there yeah. any chance of you getting back on other ship?
0: No, 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 never. So I've been offered to go on the aircraft carriers, but to me, that's, that's something I would look into, but I've done my time, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I've done 20 years on a running submarine, near enough.
1: It would be kind of cool to see you on board an aircraft carrier, though. Yeah, I just
0: don't think I'd handle it, to be honest with you, because it's a totally different world compared to submarines.
1: I mean you get to see daylight every day. Yeah, then,
0: that's, yeah. Yeah.
1: It means looking at
0: people I don't want to look at, is it? So that's the difference. That that's
1: true. <laughs> but um, so let's talk about last year. I know you just you told you said earlier that you had to deal with COVID.
0: Yeah, massively. Yeah.
1: How did the year start for you?
0: Brilliant. So into training, um, doing a lot with my business, doing a lot with work. Um, and then obviously. We knew something was happening. Um, I knew about COVID in 2019, and it sounds stupid. I I contracted uh, a big viral infection in the December of 18, or 19, sorry, and it took about 30 days to shake it to the point where I was in bed for three weeks, and my wife was like, "I'm calling an ambulance for you." And it was respiratory problems, constant running nose.
1: You you are, you you are probably the sixth person I know, including myself. I think it was late November, early December. 19, I was down for a good six, seven days, 104,
0: 105 degree fever. Yeah, so it was,
1: so it was constant running
0: nose, couldn't breathe, my chest, I was coughing up blood, you know what I mean? And I thought, oh, it's just, i strained my stomach. So I went in and out of work and I collapsed in work in a simulator because we were in a simulator teaching engineers how to operate the reactor in emergencies and stuff like that, just like you do in your Navy. Um, and I, I just collapsed. And I was in and out of work all week, thinking, too, this is the flu. I've got a really bad flu." Yeah, and they were like, "Yeah, you've got a viral infection." And after about a week or so, I was like, "Listen, like right. normally I can brush something off, done this get it done," but I was really, really ill. To the fact that I went in about seven times into the sick bay, and I was like, "I feel rough." And the doctor's like, "It's a viral infection. We can't give you new antibiotics. You're just gonna have to sweat it out." So this was like December the 13th. And we were due back in work on the 4th of January. And I didn't go back till the 11th, which was like the Monday. And even then, I was still ill. And it was a good 30 days of shaking. And then I felt better. So I knew about SARS and stuff like that, where we hid it. And I was talking to a paramedic friend of mine, and he said about COVID back in the August of nineteen, And our NHS had been prepped, saying, look, there's a viral infection over in China. If it comes, out, yeah, it could be a pandemic prepping our national health for it. So when, when we went into national lockdown in March of 2020, I went back to work and I was like, I, I, my chest is still tight. And the doctor goes, you've had COVID. And I was like, what do you mean? She goes, we thought it was a viral infection, but it's been widespread around the world since at least July last year. And I was like, what? She goes, this ain't just a quick thing that's come out of that area. She goes, This has been over there for at least 18 months. And it they obviously the media tried to hide there and it all it all blown up. But yeah, it was just it was awful. And then we went into training. We had a couple of days off and we were called back in. And because of the nuclear side and keeping engineers and we need a nuclear determinant sea, my department, we were in all every day. One well, other well other sub-departments were all working from home. We were in every day, and we were
1: just in every day, which, yeah, just one way up, one way up. So let me ask you this, because again, uh, it's the international difference. Every Navy base here has barracks for their enlisted, um, and then they have the BOQ for officers who aren't married. Are you going home at this point in time during the lockdown every day, or are you staying Uh, on base?
0: I'm still going home, but the people who we were training weren't. Because oh, okay, we, we lived local and we were staff, because oh, okay. we, others were travelling from different parts of the UK, and some areas were high risk and low risk. For three months, people couldn't go, over. and so sometimes we were locked in here with them. And it, it, I live literally five minutes away from the camp, and I could, you know, what I mean, for some days we couldn't go, over, so we were staying in the barracks, and you know what I mean. And it, it got to the point where we had to release people. There was no. And we've had now three waves of it in the UK. And obviously we've got the jobs coming in and we start to ease lockdown as it gets warmer now. But yeah, it's just one of those. It, I and mean, I don't know why it is in America. It's just ignorance. As some people tell me if they just listen. This could have been, this could have been over six months ago.
1: I'm going to disagree with you on that because there's a whole different aspect to it that um, we can get into a little bit more offline, but yeah. it, the viral side of this makes it where there will be COVID forever now. Um, yeah, it's no, not going to. It's not ever going to completely go away. There'll always be like a little thing, bit of noise. It's yeah, like the, the,
0: the, like the common cold.
1: Yeah, it, it, and what? that's exactly what people don't understand. Is that's exactly what uh, COVID is. It's a it's a member of the coronavirus family, and the common colds made up of the adenovirus, the rhinovirus, and the uh, and coronavirus. So
0: it, we've had coronavirus for years, which is a yeah, We've yeah, always that. had corona, we've had SARS, but we fought it and genetics And to be honest with you, the way the British public were eating antibiotics, in one way, I'm glad a pandemic has happened because our bodies are now fighting it for themselves, not yeah. using antibiotics. And you, people have died. I'm not going to lie to you; people have died from it. But obvious ignorance yeah. of some people,
1: like well, having the, a big rally saying it's fake. Yeah, that's, then, see, that, that, that's the dumb part. And that's, that's, <laughs> and that's,
0: that's what I mean, the ignorance. So if, because yeah. we're a smaller nation, you know, in if we had nationally locked down when it happened, like look at New Zealand, they locked yeah. down stopped everything and within six months,
1: that the problem though, there with, for New Zealand is they can't open up because the minute they open up their borders, I mean, they can open up internally, but once they open up their borders, it's going to come yeah. right back.
0: Yeah, but the thing is, with this New Oxford Zerka vaccine, which is, what, 90% or 95% successful, yeah. it'll be like the measles, mumps, rubella job you have as kids over here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the thing is, as soon as you have that job, I think that will be it. But I think the coronavirus job will be a norm from now on.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. It's going to be like the flu.
0: Yeah, and then, hope like the flu job, then hopefully, yeah. hopefully, it will eradicate it in some form, if you know what I mean. But, as you said, it is going to be
1: with us for, look, it's something that's changed
0: how we live, isn't
1: it? I, I like to remind people that there has only been one virus that has ever been eradicated from the face of the earth and that is smallpox. Yeah. And I also like to remind people that the time it took to eradicate smallpox was all of human history up until 1972. So if we think we're going to get rid of this new virus in two years, uh, no, no not gonna happen. But so, that being said, what was it? What was the? I know how military towns are here. I live in one. Um, what was it like going through the streets in a lockdown naval town? Yeah, people. This is what I mean, ignorance. People still out.
0: We could still go out and walk. Um, we were in. We were in the back garden, but we we were social distancing walking. But yeah, just you always get. The classic knobhead, as we like to call them in the UK, that one person that thinks they're above the rules and doesn't listen. And we've had that. We've had that massively to the point now where you can get fined now. People are having mass raves parties and you can get fined ten thousand pounds, which is about fourteen thousand dollars, just for holding it. And people are still doing it because they're ignorant and stupid. And it's only when it happens to. A member of their family they actually wind wise up you know what i mean so all my family's had it my my wife my kids my mother in, my mother-in-law is the only one who hasn't because she had the job um all my friends have had it and they reckon at least 95 percent of the uk population has had it over the last 18 months
1: yeah and, and that's yeah. that's the other big unknown too with it is we don't know how many of the asymptomatic people there really were. Uh, I know from the resources I follow, because I'm reading studies on it almost daily, that it they're predicting when it's all said and done, it's probably gonna be 10, 10 to 20X the number of actual cases we've seen.
0: So you, you think about it, the only big thing was the Spanish influenza, wasn't it? That killed so many people in the UK and across the Europe. And that took five years
1: to sort itself out and killed millions. I mean, we're talking a hundred and I think hundred and fifty-eight million. So I, I have a hard time making the comparison between the two. Uh, that uh, means... believer, so
0: I take I take so many vitamins, vitamin E, vitamin D. I have for years. Well, um, there's there's a bigger issue. I still had COVID. It yeah. still hit me up for two weeks. Yeah, and I'm there, still still feeling the after effects of it.
1: There, there's the bigger issue. Is here in the U.S it seems like they have been a concerted effort not to talk about uh, individual health and individual responsibility. Um, I s- go for my walks every morning and I have a policy and this is just me personally, I don't really interact with people when I'm on my walks. So if I'm outside in wide open areas, the, the spread of COVID is so minuscule in wide open air- outside areas, especially when you're not around anyone. I don't wear a mask, but I see I see these people who are 380 pounds on the other side of the river giving me a dirty look and they have oh, I don't know, I'm, I'll make something up, a donut in their hand scarfing yeah, down yeah. a donut. Yeah, like, we've been doing this for a year. If you're, you're not taking care of your own health, don't give me a dirty look for not wearing no, a
0: mask. Anyone with respiratory problems, overweight, um, stuff like that, it, it, it hits people and I've said this, and there's a lot of conspiracy theory. That stop the lying about it. Where the British government last year couldn't lie, and it's still, we don't know 100% how it's going to work. We don't, still don't know 100% how it is. And you get some, our Prime Minister Boris Johnson, you know what I mean? I know, I know the big hoo ha with your new president and all that, which I think the dullest thing is you ever put Bindon in power. That's my philosophy, but <laughs> right. why? For a man who's seventy odd years of age, you can't even string a, a sentence together, and I mean it's very touchy, touchy. Then, now like, ding, ding, and there's got to be a big alarm bell ringing somewhere. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, Boris Johnson, you know, what I mean, he's had it. Um, our government are trying to do it. They're trying to do their best, but we don't know the ins and outs of this. Stop you lying. Tell yeah. everyone's we, we we don't know what's going on. They they and it's the hands, face, space, and all this crap, but. What stop the lineup of the numbers because it's just come to light that every death now that that's been recorded, even if someone got run over, it was like, Oh, they died of COVID. No, we had, had, we had that here too. Yeah, so they have to start bringing it back to the actual uh, fatality number or the R number, as we call it. Um, and yeah, it what they don't tell you is the common cold and flu killed exactly the same amount of people last year. The year before, and in fact, because we're more cautious about the hand, face, fans, face, space, and distancing, the number of people who died through COVID in the UK is far less than they did through flu. It is a is a horrible pandemic and stuff like that. And he said you could talk for hours about it, but let's not lie about it. It is a killer. The common cold is a killer. The flu is killer. If you don't look after yourself, you're going to be vulnerable. And it is this stupidity and ignorance of people. So. Get yourself healthy. Get your, and yeah. to be honest with you, I think it's one of the best things that could have happened because now we are more aware you've only got one life.
1: Yeah, no, you know that's I mean? true.
0: That, and it that, can, be that's taken cool. at, can be taken at any time. You yeah,
1: I mean, I mean you, you and I have both lived in the we know what life means world. Oh, but yeah. There's a lot of people out here, whether it's here in the States or there, who even if they've served, and I don't mean to put anyone who served down, but unless you've served in your life has been on the line um, in a situation that was out of your own control, um, I don't think people quite realize what it means to live through something like what we're living through right now.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Because so, there's so much fear right now.
0: I as That's what I say. I'm, I guess going back to the, the basic recruits, you know what I mean? We've had recruits who've joined up and they're still in training now because we've been hit by COVID through LFT testing, and it's an instant 14 days isolation. You know what I mean? So they 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 come out of training, they come out of isolation, and they've got to do a four-week get healthy package. Whereas instructors, we don't get that. We're just trucked straight back into the cold base to do the training. But as I said to them, people don't realise when you come to the situations, and I told people about my stories about people I've lost friends, I've lost and, and I say. That uniform you're wearing, I've had friends die for that. So don't take the piss of it and respect it. And it is that one thing. You don't respect their uniform. I will do everything in my power to make sure you'll never ever be in my service. You
1: know what I mean? That that's that's a good thing. (laughs) That um that you know I've always tease people about it, but in the United States, there's only one service that is constitutionally authorized to be uniformed 24-7, and that is the United States Navy. If you read the Constitution, it says uh, the Congress shall pa- shall provide for the Navy and raise armies when needed, something to that effect. Yeah, so that uh, I, enough. I always tease the, uh, the, the Army. You guys don't have a right to be here right now, but that being said, there's something about the Naval Service that is much greater to us who are sailors than I think sure. most of the Army guys are now. <laughs>
0: It's, it's the same with us. We're the senior service, so we were formed by Cromwell and Henry VIII. Obviously, armies against the French and all that. But French, uh, the armies were still, um, how can I say, private armies for years after the navy was formed. So that's why we salute with our hand there as a respect. And the reason was because we had dirt on hands, and it was rude to show the dirt on your hands to salute. Where the army salute the hand, it means I haven't got a dagger in my hand. So, when they come against another commanding officer, they wouldn't like them. And it's like traditions like that, you no know, those senior service, we've only got one uniform. Where the Army and the Air Force got different ranges of uniform, especially the Army in some regiments, they got red uniform, green, like the Marines got a red uniform, green. We've got one colour and that's black. <laughs> yeah, for all occasions, weddings, funerals, birthdays. So,
1: really? we only
0: have one uniform. Yeah, we only have one number one uniform.
1: I Where thought you guys have
0: had your a... Wives, your pounds. Where you have your white, your your page and stuff like that. We haven't we got tropical uniform but and a work uniform but our ceremonial dress is just one color and
1: that is it. Well see so uh we have this is where we get a little awkward with our dress uniforms we have our summer dress which is our whites which yeah. I call them the dirt magnets yeah and then and then we have our what they just called our dress uniform which is our blues which are yeah. senior to the whites so theoretically you could you could choose to wear your blues over your whites, seasonally or not. But when it comes to medals and the full getup, it's typically only the, uh, well, no, I can't. Actually, I take that back. The, uh, for ceremonial purposes like the White House and the, the Navy Yard, uh, the color guards and stuff, it's always going to be the blues. When you're in full dress yeah. with everything,
0: white stress and then you got your beige stuff with the officer officers and senior mates out.
1: Yeah, I mean Where, we got we got way too many uniforms, in the navy. Period. Uh, so, we got,
0: so we got PCS. We got half well half blues, which is a white shirt and a black trousers, and our number one uniform. That's it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and then, well, I I guess I would put our camis online with your working with your uh. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Camis and coveralls, because yeah. even yeah. even on board ship, I see people um, from videos who half the time uh, bridge staff and crew are on, are in uh, the coveralls, but then on the flight deck, everyone's in their camis.
0: Yeah. So so PCS. So we we got our MTP with the army, had, which we use now and again, which is the first time I've ever worn it, being a, a phase one instructor now. But yeah, I'm, I was always used to wearing. Daily work rig or overalls. That's it. And then our number ones, which we call our number ones, which is your blues, which we use for ceremonials, weddings, funerals, and stuff like that. But we've only ever had one one number one uniform yet.
1: So when you came in into the Navy, um, at the end of your train of your basic training, did you have a graduation ceremony?
0: Yeah, yeah. So you have a pass up for it. we're you- in square, square rig, which is the proper, unless you're an officer, which is straight into the your, your officer's dress, but yeah. But, but did you this, have you know, your family come out? Yeah, so my 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 dad and my mum and my two nans come, so my nan who was married to my I still call him my grandfather, but he's my dad's stepdad who was in the in the army, and my my mother's mother, my other nan, who was married to my grandfather, who was in, yeah, but he passed away and my other grandfather was ill. So it was just my two nans and my mum and dad, and it was quite a Quite a coincidence because I've got a little mini bar of the back garden, which I have built a little shed, and it's got all my naval nifty naff trivia. So, when you come to my house to have a drink for the first time, you have to bring something navy orientated with your personal due. So, I've got friends like hip flasks, friends, coins, command, uh, you know, challenge coins, spoofing coins, and pictures. Um, yeah, and yeah, when you, as soon as you do that, you have to have a toddler to run. That, nice. That's the in my bar, so you have to have a ton of rum, and it's basically just to toast friends and absent friends. You know what I mean? Yeah. And It's just one of the traditions I've brought into the back garden, and yeah, in my in my shed at the moment There's some like twenty bottles of rum, there's port, <laughs> oh there's yeah there's everything in there. So yeah, but it it, it was surreal because my nan, um, I got like a little, it's like a ashtray, like a cigarette like tray. And my nan had, and it was like a, it's like a porcelain thing. And it was me and my nan when I passed out, she had a made, and it's in my bar and people go, why are you going on? I said, that's what my nan bought me. When I passed out 25 years on, she passed away five years ago. Oh, wow. but I've still, got, I've still got it glued onto my bar underneath like all different ships, crests and different things. there. Nice.
1: So yeah. the reason, area. the reason why I brought up the uh, graduation or as you call it, the passing, um, and family is how weird has it been for the, these kids for the last year well, assuming just
0: that
1: just they have haven't that
0: they don't they have no for they, not, no family so we're quite lucky I pass my class out end of May is the end of May yeah it'll be the end of May my class pass out and we're the first passing out class to allow families to come after nearly 16-17 months
1: oh wow yeah. I, I mean, I, I feel like it's the same way with the Navy. They, here, they've been live streaming it. Um, and much like you were saying, uh, those guys that you were training in the nuke on the nuke side, the Corman, because I'm right down the street from where Corman go to their training, They, the kids who come down from boot camp are not allowed to leave the base for oh. the eight to 10 weeks that they're there so um until they graduate then they get shipped off to their first command so they don't get to see they don't get to take their in-between leave that happens after you get from boot camp to a school and then they're stuck at their school for however long that school is and then they go to their first command uh, i i just feel bad for them and even for your guys
0: uh we're, we're, we're quite lucky because we have leave. All of all right, when, when initially happened, if you weren't part of the, uh, a high classified course like we we were teaching, you could go home and some of them went home for four or five months. You know I mean, we had one of the guys who was a warrant officer, but he's, he's got a heart condition, and the same again, he's a big bloke, you know, overweight, but yeah, he went home in January last year. And he turned up for work when I'd left. My my friend who was wrong last night in the garden for the first time in months because we're allowed another family in the garden zone. He was saying he turned up for one day Emptied his desk out, so he's been at home for 13 months getting paid full pay for 13 months.
1: Nice, nice, and I then he's gone, he's
0: gone to join a submarine in, in refit, so he's going to be home for another however long it takes. So it, it, that's the mockery of it. We haven't really dealt with it really good over here, but yeah. But um,
1: well, i mean, well, I was talking about this uh, the, the recruits and the students that yeah, you were
0: so recruits now. So today, as I said, they've gone on leave, so they've got a two weeks Easter leave now. But when they come back, the first thing we'll do it do is LFT them, test them for COVID. And if any of them test positive, that's their two weeks in isolation straight away. So that's them back classed course halted where they, course halted where it is and take it from there. Yeah. So as we said, we got recruits who joined up in January who still haven't passed out because they've had COVID twice now. You know what I mean? Well, they tested positive COVID. And they've had to isolate, and then another person is tested, so they've had to isolate again. Oh, God.
1: <laughs> so, yeah. I'm surprised they're letting them go on this leave. That's pretty impressive. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, it's because of the R number. Believe it or not, in the UK, the R number's dropped massively. So, because of all the injections and the dis- social distancing and stuff, we've got on the, the weather starting to get warm, because that's a massive factor. Over Christmas, yeah. that's when we locked this all down. So, you've got businesses that have gone bankrupt people losing their jobs, people losing houses over here. And our government have had to do a massive package, billions of pounds has cost. But this is what I mean. Instead of sorting the country out, they paid, I think it's like an obscene amount for an app. And it's in the billions of pounds this app is, and it's not even bloody working. (laughs) It's just, yeah, it's just
1: good idea stuff. The good Good idea, idea. the good idea, the good idea fairy is not always a good idea fairy. All right, my friend. Um, I'm so glad you came on and we gotta do another one soon. Yeah, uh, I it, dude, it's so good to see you, and you look so so healthy and so good.
0: Yeah, get old. Too old now, sorry, too old, 42, 43 this year. Like oh Getting old.
1: You know, but you're still doing it, which is a good thing.
0: You have to. You only live once student. If if I can give give back. And not let people go through what I've, what I've been through, or just give them a, a sense of that there is someone there who actually gives a hoot and takes You know, I mean, I'd rather be I'd rather be remembered for someone who cared instead of someone who didn't care. And that's that's how I feel, and that's all stemmed from you know, what I mean, my injury more than anything. So, yeah.
1: Thank you, man. That that's a good way to end this. Um... We will definitely be talking more and yep. I cannot wait to hear your stories from the future of how many <laughs> crazy recruits you guys have putting through, but I'm going to stop the recording. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com. On Instagram, The Modern Ronin. On Twitter, at TommyChase01. And you can always support us at ModernRonin.Locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.